get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get ready for winter driving at Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers with super deals on tires, including up to $200 on new Goodyear tires, plus oil changes, brakes, batteries, and more. For value and savings, click on gotodobbs.com today. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. We are, what, 28 hours away at this point from opening day for the Cardinals. Alex, I think back to, I guess it would have been a little more than a month ago at this point about where we were and the possibility that we weren't even going to have an opening day this year. And man, does it feel good to know that tomorrow afternoon, Adam Wainwright's going to be on the mound. You're going to have Yadier Molina behind the plate. You're going to have Albert Pujols as your designated hitter tomorrow against the Pittsburgh Pirates. It's pretty wild that this is where we are now. I'm so excited, man. I I can finally feel the anticipation building before tomorrow afternoon. It, honestly, I think my excitement was at its all-time high as soon as we found out the lockout was over because I was just getting so frustrated with having those same conversations about going back and forth with, you know, money and, and everything that went into it, but it's it's nice that we're finally at this point and you're right like the nostalgia part has me excited and knowing that we're going to be down at the ballpark tomorrow close by with all of the festivities is going to be really exciting so i'm just glad we got to this point and now we can take the shift off and the focus off of what we were talking about in the off season you don't have to worry about I mean, I guess technically you do have to worry about it still, but COVID and the pandemic that we've had to go through, it can feel like what the Blues season felt like to where it's like it's just a normal season. Yeah, now. This is the first time that we've had a normal baseball season in three years, and it's kind of wild to think about it that way, but it's true. And so this foot puts the shift, the focus, and now goes firmly onto the team that we're going to actually watch on the field this year. I'm pretty high on this Cardinals team. I think they're going to be pretty good. There's no now, surprise. That doesn't mean they're going to win 100 games. It doesn't mean they're the favorite in the National League. I don't feel that way about them. The Dodgers would still be, for me, the clear-cut top team in the NL. I think, depending on health, and that's always a huge caveat with this team, but I would probably have the Mets second in the National League as of today. A lot of that depends on the health of both Scherzer and Jacob DeGrom, and we'll see there. But if they're healthy, I really like their club. I think the Cardinals, if you're asking me, like, how many teams are definitively better than them, it's just those two. I think they're in the same category as the Brewers, as the Braves, as the Phillies, whoever, Giants, Padres, whoever else you want to throw into that mix. I think they're right there with them. And so that begs the question of, okay, why didn't they do more? Why didn't they try to clearly put themselves atop that second tier in the National League? Well, that was the question that 
Carriker and Smallman asked to the Cardinals chairman, Bill DeWitt Jr., earlier today. Here's what Bill DeWitt Jr. had to say on our morning show. You know, teams that go all in, that's a strategy. Our strategy has been to really strong teams, but have the opportunity to have have some continuity with those players. And no team is perfect. There's some really good teams out there. I think we're very competitive. And, you know, we have been competitive for, for a long period of time. Let me start out with this. I want to start with the good, and then I'll get to why I, I, I do have a little bit of a disagreement with some of that. The Cardinals deserve a ton of credit. This ownership deserves a ton of credit for the way that the Cardinals have been a consistent winner for more than 20 years now. That is not an easy thing to do. We talked about this a few weeks ago, guys. There was that piece that came out ranking the top teams in baseball since 2000. Cardinals were right up at or near the top of that list because of their sustained level of winning. I think Randy mentioned this earlier today. There's only been five games that the Cardinals have played, I think in the last last 10 years or something like that, that did not have relevance for the playoff picture they played five games in which they were completely eliminated from the playoffs over the last decade that's an unbelievable statistic no other team in baseball really can say something like that so credit is deserved that the ownership group the front office everybody involved allowed that to be possible that's the front end now the negative side of things I remember listening to Mike Fair, and he was on Derek Gould's podcast, the best podcast in baseball for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I think they do a great job, and Mike Farron was on there for MLB Network. And he said something that stuck with me ever since. He said, I don't need the Cardinals to go all in. I wouldn't expect them to do that. I don't think they need to do that. Frankly, I don't think they should do that. And I agree with that assessment for what it's worth. But it always feels like they're one move away from being a really good team. And I still feel that way this year. Like last year, I felt like they were one going into the season, one hitter away from feeling really good about the offense. Eventually, they were one pitcher away from feeling really good about the rotation. This year, I feel like you're one spot in the rotation away from feeling excellent about this Cardinals team. You look at some of the projections, man, they are right up at or near the top of the position player rankings. If you're just looking one through nine on who they've got in their order, People are very high projection-wise on what this offense could be this year. And then you get to the pitching, and people are like, ah, bottom 10 staff in baseball right now. That's what the projections would tell you. And so I don't need them to go all in, but a move like the Sean Mania trade, that's not going all in, man. It's $10 million, and you're giving up prospects that are in the middle of your system. That's the thing that kind of frustrates me about the Cardinals. It's not about going and signing Carlos Correa, although I would have loved that and putting an extra $35 million towards your payroll this year. It's that one little extra oomph that you could add to the roster that they just really haven't done in recent years. I think what's frustrating for me as a Cardinals fan when I hear that is, and I'm with you, BK, like I don't need you to go all in all the time. Like I don't need you to be mortgaging your future so that you can go out there and win possibly one World Series in a span of five years, but then be awful for the next 10. Like, don't be the Cubs. I don't want yeah, that. Like, and, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to correlate it with hockey, but Doug Armstrong, I thought, made a great point at OB Clark's like talking about, like, yeah, like some of these teams that are spending all, like the Florida Panthers, for example, they're spending all of these assets right now to win a Stanley Cup. That's great, but somebody's got to lose. And when you lose, you paid all of that to be exited out of the second round of the playoffs, and you're not standing there with the Stanley Cup. What's frustrating for me as a Cardinals fan, though, is look is when you feel like you have the team to do it. And I think we all can agree offensively. This team looks dangerous. Like we've talked about the, the two through five spot in your order looks really dangerous. 
as a fan, I want my team to go all in when I know that the timing is right. What does that look like for you, though? Because when, when you say all in, are you saying like they should have signed one of the shortstops yes, and they were no. wrong for not doing no, it? No, because or? I think when you look at the 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 position that they're short in this season, it's in the rotation. And, and this what was would that have included Max for you? Scherzer. Okay. I, I mean, Max Scherzer, and, and I understand it's money and and it's not my money. I'm not the wallet. I, I know. It. I'm not the owner of the Cardinals, and I don't know what that business looks like. And maybe there's biblical losses tied in. I don't know. But from a fan's perspective, when I hear that, that's frustrating because I look. I know that my team is good, and I look at the landscape in the NL Central and the National League, and I'm thinking, okay, I can compete with the Dodgers, and I can compete with the Mets, and I can compete with the Phillies. But I need one more piece. And to sit here and say, well, we're going to stick with what we have internally in our method. That's fine. Go with it. But when there's a, when there's a guy there for you that makes sense, that can take you to that next level, you got to go all in for that. Because Max Scherzer, everyone's in agreement, makes this team a World I Series contender. I him that contract. I want yeah, $43 I, million over a three-year deal to a 37-year-old pitcher. I'm just not making that deal. I, like I, if you were, If you wanted to go that route... I would have probably done more than Marcus Stroman level of deal. deal or, I don't even know what he got paid, but I don't think it was like $24 million per year or something like that. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. But I agree that there's a time where a franchise should go all in. I think there is always a pinnacle in which a team should do that. I just don't know if the Cardinals were actually, are actually there this year. I mean, the NL is a big like clog right now and I still view the Dodgers as the best team, but like, I don't view them as far out as they were at one point. And let's be honest, I know Cardinals fans aren't going to want to hear me say this, but I don't know if there's really there's going to be very, very, very limited times that the Cardinals are going to be a team that's going to be going all in. And the reason I say that is because the Dodgers are always going to be out spending and they're going to be spending like crazy. And now you can throw the Mets into that category. You've got two massive spenders now in the National League. So they will always be up there and be as one of those teams that is at the pinnacle of contention. And if you're going to go all in, it's got to be you are legitimately one piece away to where you think you become the favorite. And the Cardinals just aren't there this year. And I don't know how often that's going to occur down the line. Now, I agree they can go make a move that's like the Shamanaya words, add a piece where it makes you feel good. You should have a feeling going into a series when you go up against the favorite, like this year the Dodgers, let's say. If you're going to meet them in the playoffs, I want to have a feeling where it's not like, oh my gosh, we, we don't stand a chance. No, it should be a feeling of, okay, we're probably not favored in this. Let's say people are predicting a 4-2 to two series win for the Dodgers. All it takes is, and I know Cardinals fans hate to say this, one good bounce for the Cardinals and you can win that third game, and one other good bounce and you can win that fourth game. Yeah, Just the one little is, thing. The problem is, how long has it been since they've been competitive in October? The Cardinals? Yeah. I think last year, I mean, I... I know that others disagree with me. I think if they win that game against the Dodgers, I think they end up going on a run in the playoffs. I agree. I think they go and run if they win that game I'm against just, the Dodgers. I'm just not there. I, I just... I mean, they were a swing of the bat away from beating the Dodgers, and the Dodgers were to everybody considered to be Goliath last year. And they ended up, they, their pitching broke down as they got into that series against the Braves, and there was that's how the Braves made it to the World Series. But I, I think the Cardinals were going to the World Series last year if they won that game in, in, in the Wilds card. Yeah, I just disagree with that. I just don't think I've, I've seen the competitiveness in October for some time now, and that's where I think the frustration I mean, the comes in. The game was competitive, in. though. They lost understandably so, but I mean, how many times have we gotten to a wild card and said, oh, well, I mean, they got there, and they were uh, an inning away from winning. It was the NLCS, like, what, two and a half years ago 20, now? 2020, Under- they weren't competitive. And, uh, yeah, they were. Sorry, they won a game. So, yeah, I viewed them as competitive. I mean, 
Hell, if you're in October, you're at least competitive. I mean, they got to the NLCS in 19. And they, 2020 was, like, I, I just can't judge year, the team based on that season. I get it. But 2020, you won the first game in San Diego, and then you just lost the other two, if I'm not mistaken. And then last year, I mean, that team, how hot that offense was and how great that I mean, guess we had six guys in the circle of trust by the time the season came around. I felt really good about that team. They just ran into a team that somehow is a wild card with 106 wins. So that was just bad timing for the Cardinals. And it was a lesson to be learned. Hey, we can't, we can't lose the division. Now, granted, now that there's three wild card spots, there's a little bit more room for that. But. And last year, I felt like they were one, not at the end, but going into the season, I, I just wanted them to add that one more bat. This year, I want them to add that one more one more starter. And I'm not going to the Max Scherzer levels. I I'm not even sure I would go all the way up to Marcus Stroman, but could you have made a trade for one of those guys that's making 10 to $12 million this year? I think they could have if they wanted to, if they felt like that was a move that they needed to make. The Cardinals disagree with us. They clearly are betting on their young pitching. They might be right. They might be wrong, though. And the impact of them being wrong early in the year is very similar to what it was last year, where that thing can crumble quicker than you expect. And if they're not willing to make the move to be able to stabilize things like they didn't last year, they were slow to react, then it could have a very similar impact to what it was a year ago. And that's my hope is that they they recognize that and they see that this is such an important season for so many guys within that clubhouse that they're willing to go make that one move. And that's that's my big thing is when I heard that quote from Bill DeWitt Jr. earlier today, I was like, OK, I actually agree with his assessment. You should not go all in ever for this team in this city. I don't think they should because it means on the back end, you got to pay for that. You got to go through what the Cubs are going through right now, what the Reds are doing. You're going to eventually have to do that if you go all in on one season. Could you go more all in than what you are right now? Could you just give that little extra umph? That's what I wish they would do. Cardinals are betting on their young players, though, and we'll see how that works out for them. Opening day tomorrow. Can't wait for 101 ESPN broadcasting live from the Budweiser Brewhouse inside Ballpark Village on Thursday tomorrow for opening day. The home opener finally here. We're going to be steps away from the stadium. You can come join us. Carriker and Smallman, our show, BK and Ferrario in the fast lane, all coming to you live tomorrow from Ballpark Village. It is all brought to you by Green Envy Lawn Care and Budweiser. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, Alex had a takeaway from last night's game between the Wild and the Predators and what it means for the Blues as we get into the playoffs we'll get into that coming up at 11 30 getting emotional gary larock the cardinals director of player development joins us next year on 101 espn we're right back to the bk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn Closer and closer to the start of the Cardinals season. We are very happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line to be joined by Gary LaRock, the Cardinals director of player development. The AAA club opened up last night, got the win in their first game of the season in Memphis. And we are very happy to talk about it with Gary LaRock today here on BK and Ferrario. Gary, it has to be a wonderful thing for you to be able to actually see these clubs and something that resembles more a regular season for you guys. How are you doing today? Well, first, thanks for having me, and uh, we were excited about a very productive spring training, and uh, and then obviously last night we started off in Memphis and uh, with a good game last night. So all in all, it's been a very solid and, as I said, productive month, and everybody's ready to go. What's been the biggest difference, would you say, this year, Gary, as the lead-up to the season for your minor league players? 
Well, we really started back in January with some non-roster players who worked out here. So we had quite a few that were interested in getting back to Jupiter and doing some work in preparation for what would be February, late February, early March, minor league camp. And then, of course, it was great to know when the major league uh, roster came back on board and we were all together. Uh, We went through an entire spring training together at that point, although quick. And everybody got their work in. We helped out where we had to as far as minor league players to help out on the major league side. And all in all, it came together very well. And, uh, you know, my hat's off to all the staff and all the people who worked extremely hard to, to make the month of March be as successful as it was from a preparation standpoint. Uh, Gary, when it comes to some of these Cardinals prospects, of course, Cardinals fans were, were so excited to hear some of these names down in Jupiter. Uh, if you don't mind, take me through some of the decision makings that went into uh, deciding on Nolan Gorman starting the year with AAA. Well, as it, as it turned out, the AAA club now obviously in Memphis – uh, for Nolan to be there, it's a wonderful opportunity to continue what he's done development-wise. Um, he came in early, uh, early being in January. He worked extremely hard. That's one of his great qualities is he's going to put all the work and effort into it. And uh, I, I would say the month of uh, leading into March, it was solid. He was prepared. And now he goes to get his playing time and continue that development. Uh, he's fine. He's uh, ready to go and, uh, you know, certainly uh, prepared for it. We're talking to Gary LaRock here on 101 ESPN. Uh, Gary, another guy that I know a lot of Cardinals fans are very excited about that starting the year down in AAA this season is Juan Yepes. What did you see from him last year in his development, and what do you want to see from him early on this year to show he's ready to go uh, at some point this year for the big league club to contribute? One of the things he did last year uh, when he moved to AAA was he played three positions. He played in the outfield in the corner and left field. He played third base and then obviously first base. And his big carrying tool at the time as he came through the system was his bat. And he got to AAA and he handled it extremely well, as you all know. And um, he's worked extremely hard. I can remember three, four years ago when he said, I'm going to get there and I want to put the work in that it takes to get there. And of course he has. And so, um, He's uh, really dedicated to the work ethic, and uh, we're really rooting for him this year. He can play multiple positions, but the big thing, obviously, is the fact that his bat is the uh, tool that came through the system as he was uh, developing. Gary, I think the biggest story in terms of Cardinals prospects was Jordan Walker being designated to double-A Springfield at a, at 19 years old. I mean, from the outside looking in, that seems like a big deal. Internally, how big of a deal is this for a 19-year-old to be getting the start at double-A? He plays with um, uh, such energy, uh, and the way he goes about his work and how he prepares is, is uh, second to none. He's just got all the talent. Uh, in terms of um, his preparation, how he goes about every day. He's a uh, great energy and, of course, a great teammate, a wonderful young man who's going to handle it uh, very well. And, you know, as most of our minor league players would tell you, they will go to levels and not be up to the level of the league when they get there. But the uh, the objective is for them to reach the level of the league and then to go buy it. And He's done that in two places so far. He did it last year here in Palm Beach and then again in Peoria. So we look forward to him having a good year. Uh, Gary, I did want to ask a little bit of a follow-up on Jordan Walker. 
I know that by trade, he's been a third baseman for much of his career, but you guys have a pretty good one at the big league club right now and Nolan Arenado. And I know these things tend to work themselves out over time, but has there been thought or is is there a plan to maybe get him some time at whether it be first base or in the corner outfield this year as well down in double a? Well, what we've just, you know, basically decided at the front end of the year is let's just do the, the, keep the plan going as we'd like in terms of third base, let them play, let them get adjusted to the double a level, let them get adjusted to the offensive side of it. He, he handles that really well. He's, Athletic enough to move anywhere we'd ask in terms of what you're speaking about in the outfield or another position. and uh, But for right now, we just want to do one thing real well with him and make sure he handles the, the third base position well. And he's going to do a good job with it. He's had a good spring in, in that respect. He's worked a lot with Jose Okendo. So we're anxious for him to get started, and um, we're looking forward to a good year. There, there's so many names that have recognition for Cardinals fans when it comes to the the minor leagues going into this season, Gary. And so many people remember the the Memphis Mafia and how they contributed to that uh, that playoff run for the St. Louis Cardinals. Do you foresee having a big impact from the minor leagues this season for the Cardinals? Well, we've always felt as though we're here to provide, and uh, the thing we mentioned often to our players is as they come through the system, it's very important for them to recognize getting there is one thing, but staying there and contributing is the thing we, we really want to shoot for. And that means every day has to matter here in the minor leagues from a development standpoint, they've all been real, really good at that and focused on that. And I would say to your question, uh, you know, we're looking forward to helping out our big league club again. We've done that every year and that's what our, job is really when you think about it and that's what we're here for development wise the players have handled it well we've got a good staff and we're really looking forward to a solid year Gary that being said over the last few years there's I all we have is just the public list right where we look over on MLB.com or Baseball America Baseball Prospectus those lists where we, we see what the top 30 prospects are and over the last few years, there's been a handful, typically, that have made their debut in the big leagues. Uh, you look over on those lists this year, and it's, I mean, littered up and down the list. Guys that could, at least, at some point this season, see their debut in the big leagues. Does it feel like th- there's almost been a graduation period now with some of those top prospects? And in my mind, I'm thinking Gorman, Liberator, Ivan Herrera, Yepes, guys like that, that we've been hearing now for two or three years their names. And now it feels like they're kind of on the cusp. Is that is that a fair way to categorize the system now compared to where it was maybe two or three years ago? Well, I've always said, you know, in most systems will find you'll find that there are there are gaps at different points. Uh, we've always been able to close our gaps, um, and I say that because we've been able to uh, bring in the Nolan Gormans and some of the players and some of the traded players that we've had over the course of time. Matt Libertor's pitching tonight in Memphis, today in Memphis. And so we've been able to close some of those gaps to what you speak about in terms of are we there? Well, every year is a challenge, and what we're really trying to do is make sure that those prospects you're talking about all have good years. That's the first challenge. And then the next challenge is develop that second-tier prospect into a a high-level prospect for the Cardinals so that they can get to the big leagues and help us as well. We've had a lot of uh, good fortune with that, and the players have responded well over the years, as you know. And we're in a position now to try to do that again. And, uh, you know, the players will determine it. And we're, we're proud of the work they're doing and just anxious to get some games under our belt here 
in Memphis and now on Friday with our other affiliates. Gary, final one from me. We've talked a lot about position players, and I know you mentioned Matthew Libator there in your, in your previous previous answer. Uh, were there some names of pitchers that really stuck out to you throughout uh, spring training? Well, there's there's quite a few guys that have done a really good job, and, and some of them ended up back in AAA to provide depth for our major league club. That's very important. So some of our younger uh, players are surrounded by some uh, experience, which is a good thing as well. Uh, extremely pleased with how uh, our Peoria rotation starts to stack up and some of the uh, the last few years, the drafts that have gone in there now to pitch. So that's going to be exciting to watch Peoria. And uh, quite frankly, all four of our full-season affiliates have players throughout that we're excited about. And it's just a matter of getting at-bats and innings, and uh, we're ready to go. Gary, I, I know previously, I'm, I'm thinking five, six, seven years ago, the Cardinals were, were really known for their ground ball pitchers, right? That was an organizational philosophy with the sinker ball uh, that you guys had. And it, it felt like it was all the way throughout the system. Is that making a bit of a comeback right now, especially given the defense that this team has at the big league level? Is that a point of emphasis in your mind? Well, I think what we've done is individualize it. So when we draft a player or through player procurement, when we obtain a player, what is that player capable of? And there are those swing and miss pitchers. We certainly want to take advantage of that. We certainly want to take advantage of the pitchers who can deliver the ground ball. So there's a lot of ways to win the game. And we're, we're fortunate that we have talent throughout the system that can do both. And I think that's a real balance that we try to create so we're excited to get that out there and get that going and uh, uh, no better than right now because we're prepared and ready to go. Gary, we appreciate the time as always. Enjoy yourself tomorrow as we get to opening day for the Cardinals. It's uh, thrilling for, I know, both you and all of the Cardinals fans that are listening right now. Thank you so much for the time today and hopefully we'll talk with you again soon. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. And we're looking forward to our opening day tomorrow. Absolutely. That's Gary LaRock, Cardinals Director of Player Development, joining us here on 101 ESPN. I'd say the biggest thing there, Alex, is um, if you're looking for like the newsworthy side of things, probably Jordan Walker. Uh, it sounds like he's going to spend the majority of his time at third base down in double A to start off this season. And then they'll see where things go from there. Yeah, and then we got a text on our Air Comfort Service text line after his answer. Did you see this? This Which was one? fantastic. It says, what tells me the answer from uh, Gary LaRock is the Cardinals want to keep Jordan Walker at third base because they don't know if they're going to be able to keep Nolan Arenado because Arenado wants to win a World Series, and the way that the Cardinals front office just wants to be competitive, he'll never win here. I just don't even know. I'm, I'm glad that that was what – like I responded to it. Is that that's what you took from his answer? That? That? But, I don't even know. But look, with, with Jordan Walker, like, uh, I, I think when you're in double A, you want to keep the, the offense competitive, I would imagine. So you don't want to take him out of his element in an uncomfortable position. So let him continue to see the next level up in, in style of, of, of pitching so that he can continue to grow hitting there. And then I'm, I'm assuming you would adjust midseason with that. Sure. I, I mean, Nolan Gorman was hitting DH last night. So that, you know, also shows you that with Memphis, they want him to get comfortable in the DH position when he sees that type of pitching. So. It doesn't surprise me with Jordan Walker there. I think by June or July, wherever he may end up, double A, triple A, I think that's when you'll start to see him get accustomed to other positions. Yeah, I, I think this is, I, I think you're right on with that, Alex. I think they want him to adjust to the pitching. 
and they want him to focus on the hitting side of things right now. He's always played third base, so you don't want him learning a new position in the field and also trying to adjust at the plate at the same time. That's a lot, and it can overwhelm a young guy, especially when he's he's 19 years old and he's going up to to double A, yeah. and he very well may end up at triple A by the end of the season this year. You don't want to throw too much at him too quickly. And I think that's probably the smart way to handle this. I got to be honest. I didn't notice that they had Nolan Gorman last night at DH. That's really interesting. Donovan was second base for him. I noticed it when when we were talking with Gary LaRock because I went back and looked at the box score. Uh, But the other thing, too, to note with Jordan Walker as well, speaking of a position change, let's not forget the Cardinals didn't do it with Nolan Gorman until spring training of the year he was going to be in AAA. Not the year he was in AA or single A. The year that they said, okay, he's going to be in AAA for the majority of the year, will work on a position change. He spent the offseason, he spent training, uh, spring training with Jose Okendo and worked on shifting over from third base to second base. It, it wasn't was all high a, a, low A when he was just getting into it. It was all third base with him because you wanted to leave him where they he was They also didn't have Nolan Arnato at that point in time, for what it's worth. Like the, the time when What's they your, shifted, what I, what I'm saying is Nolan Corbin was when they acquired I don't think Nolan they Nolan's going to opt out, so <laughs> obviously I, they got to make sure Walker stays there. What I'm there. saying is I don't think they would have done it with Nolan Gorman at second to second base and double A as well. I think it would have been a wait till you get to AAA. Get Maybe. Work, work on your bat, and then we'll work on your fielding. I think they might have go. started Gorman at second though earlier in his career. If they didn't, if they had Nolan Arenado two years prior, I think you and guys they knew. Are just- too much into the tinfoil right now. Maybe I was trying to make a good point. Because just like it sucks. So you know, well, well, what does BK on. usually say? I hear what you're saying, but you're wrong. But you're wrong. No, yeah. I just I, I think <laughs> that it's fine. BK. They had Matt Carpenter at third base, and Nolan Gorman was playing third. They didn't have Matt Carpenter playing third base anymore, and Nolan Gorman is no longer playing third. I think that was part of it. Coming up in 15 minutes or so, tinfoil. we'll get to questions and answers. Coming up next, last night showed why the Wild are the best matchup for the Blues. We'll tell you why. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Last night, the Blues weren't in action, but they will be back in action tonight against the Kraken. Alex will have your pregame coverage starting at 6 o'clock. There were a couple of Western Conference contenders, though, at least in the playoff playoff contenders, that were playing against one another last night. A big game between the Predators and the Wild. And Alex, you came in today and you said, boys... This is why the Minnesota Wild, what we saw last night, is why the Minnesota Wild are the best-case scenario for the Blues once they get into the playoffs. Why is that? Because I, I think Minnesota likes to play the nasty style of hockey. Like that's, I think that's part of the reason why they got beat up against Nashville last night. Nashville's not afraid to drop the gloves. They're not afraid to play a nasty style. That's what Minnesota wants, too, though. Minnesota wants to engage you. They, they traded for Nicholas Delorier from the Anaheim Ducks because the guy's not afraid to drop the gloves. Jacob Middleton, your guy from the San Jose Sharks, he's not afraid to get in nasty a little bit if he has to. I think that plays into the Blues cards perfectly, and I think that's why the Blues have had so much success against Minnesota in the past because the Blues are notorious for just letting guys do what they want to do. The Blues are, and Joey talked about this on pregame a couple of nights ago, and I'm watching that Minnesota-Nashville game last night, and I'm envisioning the Blues in the position of Nashville. Minnesota's trying to get extracurriculars. They're trying to draw guys into dropping the gloves and playing with a little nastiness to them. The Blues' M.O., and people are going to take this the wrong way, but their M.O. is to play a boring style of hockey. Their M.O. in the first period is to play their system, dump, Chase, cycle, little finesse that's involved with it. I know, tongue-in-cheek turnovers here and there. But Minnesota wants guys to get engaged to it. And I think the Blues go about their business. 
And when they do, it makes those guys irrelevant in the hockey game. Like there's no fourth line for the Minnesota wild because Delorier is not a guy who's going to go out there and offensively show you up. He's a guy that's going to go out there and he's going to play the style. That's going to try and get underneath the skin of a David Perron or a Ryan O'Reilly or things like that. That's where they get their advantage. I think if the blues match up perfectly against Minnesota because they bide their time, they do what they need to do. Minnesota doesn't have a game plan with that. And that's where I think the blues can exploit the mismatch on the ice. Is that good for the Blues to go up against a heavy physical team, though? See, I, I feel like it's not but, because of how slow they can start first period. But look at how that would be a tone set. But look at how they played those teams this season. I mean, who would you consider heavy teams this year? Nashville, they beat them the last two times. Calgary, Calgary, they've beaten them two out of three times. Minnesota, they've beaten them. I think it was just the Winter Classic that they played against them. The Pittsburgh team, played them pretty physical, and they lost both of those. Pittsburgh's a di- Eastern Conference teams are a different entity, in my opinion, because you just don't see them as often like the Western conference teams. I look at, I mean, even Anaheim, the blues have had success against this season. Like I think the blues play better against those teams that try and get physical with them because I don't know if teams expect that from the blues. I don't know if the blues, I don't know if teams go into a matchup with St. Louis and say, Oh, that's the team that had Pat Maroon and the team that isn't afraid. Joel Edmondson to go out there and and play rough. If we need them to, the blues can do that. But they only do it if they need to. And that's why I think it just matches up perfectly. Because if you look at it since since the trade from Nicholas Delorier from Anaheim for the Minnesota Wild, they're third in the National Hockey League in major penalties. They've got seven of them. Nashville's number one with ten of them. I just, and this might be tinfoil. Somebody just texted in and said it's a lazy hockey take. Might be. But watching that game last night, watching how Minnesota wants to play, I think that falls right into the trap for the St. Louis Blues of how they can take advantage of that team in a seven-game series. It's interesting. I, so let me say this on the front end because I don't want this to be taken. Clearly, some of the things that I've said over the last couple of days based on our text line have been taken in ways that I didn't mean for them to be, and that's that's on me. i got to communicate better. Um, I think that the Wild are the best-case scenario in terms of the the realistic matchup for the Blues because there's only three. It's either the Wild, the Avs, or the, or the Flames, and I would much rather see the Wild than either the Flames or the Avs, and it has less to do with stylistically and more to do with I just think that those other two teams are better than the Wilds are right now, and so I would rather play the lesser team than uh, Colorado or Calgary. I don't think that it's stylistically the Blues match up all that great, though, against Minnesota. Like, if if you're telling me I could play against a team that's more high-flying or a team that's more physical this year for this specific Blues team, I think I would rather play against a team like Edmonton or a team like I'm trying to think of a, a good example of maybe from the Eastern Conference that's just high-flying. Edmonton's maybe. given you troubles, though, every game this season that you've played against them. I think that's more of a danger to the Blues because if a team likes to get into that speed style with them, the high flying, then the Blues think, okay, well, we can combat that with our high flying style. And that's where you get more turnovers. I think the heavier teams are the teams that try and trap the Blues in their own zone with the physical play. And now with puck movers in their own zone, like Tori Krug when he comes back and Nick Letty for how they've worked. That's an advantage to the Blues because they can offset that power with speed. Maybe, or, or the other way, like you can look at it both ways. Because I think they're like what you're saying is not incorrect, Alex, at all. But I think you can look at it the other way of okay, yeah, maybe they are able to get it out of their own end a little easier. But the other problem is, what if those guys are just standing in front of the net and the Blues don't have that guy that's going to push them out of the way? And now you're getting all kinds of shots from the crease all day long. And that that's a problem as well, potentially in that kind of a series. So 
I, I think that both sides, that, that there's ways to look at it either way. If you're looking at it the optimistic route, it's the Wilds are the best case scenario, both stylistically and because they're the, the, the worst team of the three that we're talking about as potential opponents. Um, if, but that stylistic part, if we break it down a little further, if you're looking at it through the glass half full lens, it's the Blues are going to be able to get it out of their own end. And as you've said, they can cycle it through their boring and th- th- that brings the best out of them. The other way, the way that I tend to look at it in this series, uh, if it ends up happening is that physicality concerns me with this specific Blues team because they haven't been a physical team all year long. And I don't know that they're going to match that intensity in a seven game series. And I, I do kind of fear that physicality actually becomes a problem for the blues over a seven game series. It does wear them down a little bit. They get out of their game. They end up playing more towards the strengths of the wild. That's my biggest concern in a matchup like that. And I'm glad you brought up the getting worn down because that's what was the thing for the blues in that 19 cup run. What it was, they were going to bring the physicality and they were going to wear you down throughout a seven game series. I mean, they legitimately broke the San Jose sharks legitimately. They sent a couple guys that were injured because they played such a physical brand of hockey and for the Blues that are going to be this offensive-minded team that I think are going into the playoffs that are going to have to score three, four, five goals a game to win, playing in a physical kind of series like that, that could wear down a team like the St. Louis Blues, I, I think. I, I, would, I think I would much rather play that high-flying, up-and-down pace team because I just feel like that fits better with what the Blues are trying to do in this playoff run. If you look at the, the, the teams that have played that high-flying style this season, the Edmonton Oilers, um, the Colorado Avalanche when you've played Colorado, even at the time that you played Vegas, and the Blues had success against Vegas, but those teams have caused more problems for the Blues than the physical teams. And uh, for me personally, I think they have the guys that can handle that physical prowess, especially if you consider... Callie Rosen, who's played really well, and I'm just looking on the defensive side, your two healthy scratches in playoffs are going to be Nico Mikkel and Marco Scandella. And those are both physical guys that if they have to step in, they can step in for you. Offensively, I mean, this this, this team has been able to, to hold up their end of the bargain in terms of physical play when they've absolutely needed it to. You might need a couple more guys to step up, but that's where we've liked Alexei Torpchenko so much to where he's got that style to his game. And Nathan Walker plays a little bit nastier. I, I just think if you get into a game where another team wants to say, OK, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to beat them up so they can't finish a seven game series. I think that's going to work in favor of the Blues. Six, five, seven, eight, oh, is the air comfort service text line from the six, three, six guys. The Blues have owned the wild all season long and now we don't match up well that's a hot take by bk they've played once and the wild are not the same team today that they were the last time that these two teams negative 30 out like i i don't know how i can possibly look at that and be like yeah because of the winter classic game it clearly shows that the blues are the better team jordan bennington was a different player in that game jordan Cairo, frankly was a different player in that game he was all world everything that was him at his peak he hasn't been that over the last few weeks I'm not saying that the Blues would go into that series and lose. I think it would be a really, really compelling series. I think it has the potential to go the distance. But I don't think that there's any... Here's the way that I look at it. Maybe this is the best way for me to frame it. I don't think there's a good series for the Blues right now. There there is no good matchup in the playoffs for them. There's never a good matchup in the playoffs, in my opinion. Like, like, The playoffs are just a different animal. And some teams, like if you're Colorado, yeah, a better matchup would be against, I don't know, Vegas because they're banged up and they haven't had their roster. But I mean, I just I never buy into the sentiment of there's a there's a best matchup in the playoffs because everybody's going to give you your best. I just you look at the way they play and I just feel like one 
is one style is a little bit more beneficial to a team than the other. But I understand it completely what you're saying, BK. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service Exxon. Questions and answers coming up next. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. We're talking golf on the show coming up here in about 10 minutes or so. I know it's shocking to everybody. We're talking tomorrow too. Good. My driving game is terrible. No, your your that kind of is golf. terrible. Tiger oh. Woods is actually participating in the Masters. Hell this yeah, is incredible. Is. What a story. And Bob Herrig wrote the book called Tiger and Phil golf's most fascinating rivalry. So he has a ton of insight into Tiger's mindset, everything that's going into this week. We're going to talk to Bob Herrig of sports illustrated coming up here in about 10 minutes or so about the biggest story in sports well, right now. And I, honestly, the second biggest, and I'm fascinated to get his take on this is Phil Mickelson. Yeah. Not Phil participating. Mickelson, no, he might be participating. Oh, really? They're saying that well, he I might see that. So because it's the, if, and I might be messing this up, but because it's the masters and he's a former champion, He's allowed to participate in the Masters. And I, I I read something earlier today that they were expecting him or they were unsure if he was going to be showing up to participate in it the looks Masters. Like everything I'm seeing is that he's not going to play. Man, I, 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 I read something earlier today that they were they were expecting him to make an appearance. Regardless, not at the Masters for the first time in three decades. The why part is clear is absence, uh, blah, 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 blah. You know the story, man. Um, we did not disinvite Phil, says the Masters. He's a three-time Master champion. He reached out to me, I think, in late February uh, to let me know that he does not intend to play. That was by way of text. I thank him for his courtesy and of letting me know. So it looks like Phil not participating this time around, but mm. um, that's going to be fascinating as well. If you would have told us, like, think about this time last year, who's not going to be participating in the Masters next year, Phil or Tiger? Like, the odds on Tiger being the one that ends up playing would have been astronomical in, in that scenario. Um, but we'll talk to Bob Herrig about that coming up here in about 10 minutes or so. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. Guys, the obvious answer, the answer to this is Albert Pujols. But other than him, who are you most excited to see play again tomorrow? Kind of stole that away from me because that would be Albert Pujols. Um Honestly, that's tough because I'm I'm interested to see if Goldschmidt carries over spring training. I'm interested if Nolan Arenado looks like he, he's going to make an effort for that MVP. And I mean, obviously, Wayno is going to be in that conversation. I mean, that's the that's the best part about opening day. The, I mean, every storyline for every position I'm curious about and the season just kind of picks up from there. But if I were to pick one above the rest, it would probably have to be that first start of the final season, potentially for Wayno and Yachty. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I, and I, again, he's st- the still pulls from me, but I mean, that's probably the number one thing. I'm, and sorry be clear, about because... I'm, I'm not saying pulls like that was part of the question. Yeah, yeah, but... I, I get it. Yeah, because he's always taking away the fun in this building. Uh, but I, I'm looking forward to seeing those three. The final, the final tour, maybe depending if Wayno is going to come back or not. But I'm looking forward to that because those are the three guys I've grown up watching since I became a Cardinals fan and started watching. Probably I was telling uh, Rocchio this the other day. I think my first memory of a sport was probably the 06 World Series. And who was on that team? It was Yachty, it was Wayno, and it was Albert. So th- those three. And honestly, if you, something I'm going to be looking for, at least in the first 
couple weeks of the season. I want to see these flamethrowers out of the bullpen. Uh, it's not very often I get excited about a bullpen, but guys, I think this bullpen is going to be something special. And I, I'm really looking forward to seeing the guys that were brought in, Verhagen and Whitgren, and then also what Hicks looks like coming back from uh, his two-year stint of not pitching really. And then you got the guys that we've known already in Gallegos and Cabrera. So I'm looking forward to seeing the bullpen. So my the, the true answer for me is... Is Harrison Bader. Um, I'm very excited to watch him play baseball once again. Here we go. If I'm going to give you something that's more like results based, I'm really curious to see what Goldie looks like. Like he's had such an unbelievable spring, the best maybe of his career. I mean, he, he hit 500 Which is in spring training with a ton of power as well. It wasn't like he was just giving up all of the power to hit for base hits. Uh, I really want to see if that carries over into the regular season. So in terms of just the results based, it's it's Goldie for me. But if you're going the sentimentality, obviously Yachty, Wayno, Pujols, that's that's part of that. But for me, I just really enjoy watching Harrison Bader play baseball. So I'm excited to see him out there once again. Six five seven eight zero is the air comfort service text line. Last one here from the three one or six one eight rather. The fast lane did this yesterday. I want to get your guys' answers to this. What athlete do you think did the most for their respective sport? The one that immediately comes to mind, I've got like three of them. Tiger's probably the genesis of this question, I would imagine. He's up there. Michael Phelps for swimming would be up there for me. And then Lance Armstrong for cycling. I I can't speak for you guys, but I can't imagine there were a whole lot of people that were watching cycling prior to Lance Armstrong. I'd throw Simone Biles in there, too. Now, granted, she kind of came off of USA had always been dominant in gymnastics, but she's the first one that kind of... In my, that I remember that kind of took the spotlight and was, hey, there's Simone Biles must watch TV for gymnastics. So I'd probably throw her in that category. I agree with Michael Phelps and I agree with Lance Armstrong until you had, of course, the downfall of Lance Armstrong. Those are probably the ones for me. I don't know. Maybe LeBron James in basketball, but he's kind of. Text line says Sean White. Snowboarding. That's, snowboarding that's a good and one. And Venus and Serena Williams for women's tennis, which is a good Tony one Tony Hawk well. for skateboarding, yeah. I'd say. Tony Hawk is probably up near the top of that list. That's yeah. a good one. He's still doing stuff. I yeah. saw him on Sports Center the other night talking about uh, how he injured himself skateboarding at the age of, I don't even know how old he is now. Oh, he's like, he's got to be what, in his 50s, 50s mm, you think? Yeah, I'd say probably like 56, something like that. Those, those would be the guys. For Who you got, Alex? Um, I mean, those are all really good ones. I'm trying to think UFC. Um, Ronda Rousey, maybe? That's a really good one. Yeah, I mean, and I remember, it, it, that might just be more on the female side of it. And I'm sure there's somebody before Ronda Rousey that got into UFC. But for me, like Ronda Rousey was the reason I started watching UFC because it's like, oh, damn, she is a nightmare to deal with. Um, I mean, Muhammad Ali with boxing. But I, I think more than Muhammad Ali would be Mike Tyson with boxing. I mean, that that's what really got me enthralled in in boxing. Those would be some that that, that come to mind. Tony Hawk was a really good one. Yeah, that's a really I, good I one. I was never into skateboarding, but like I always watched those events on ESPN, the X Games, and I'd always watch Tony Hawk in them. 53, yeah. by the way. 53? Wow. That's crazy. Um, he was in the most recent ep- uh, movie of Jackass. Really? Mm-hmm. You still, he he's been in like all of them, I think. Coming up here in about 15 minutes or so, we'll play a game of more likely to happen. 65780 is the air comfort service excellent for more likely to happen. But coming up next, Bob Herrig writes about golf for Sports Illustrated. He's the author of Tiger and Phil, golf's most fascinating rivalry. And he joins us next to preview this year's Masters that are shockingly going to include Tiger and will not include Phil. We'll talk to Bob Herrig about it coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. 
I'm not a huge golf guy in general, Alex, but as many people my age are, I'm a huge Tiger fan. And so when I saw late last week, early this week, that it looked like there was at least a a possibility that Tiger was going to be playing in the Masters this year, I was all in. I couldn't have been more excited. And so I knew when we had the opportunity to be able to reach out to Bob Herrig, who writes about golf for Sports Illustrated. He's the author of Tiger and Phil, Golf's Most Fascinating Rivalry. I had to make sure that we got him on. He joins us now via the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Bob, if I told you one year ago today, what are the odds of Tiger playing next year in the Masters? What do you think you could have given me at that point in time? <laughs> 10,000 to one? <laughs> And and a, and a month ago, I might have given you a thousand to one. I mean, I just just uh, uh, it just didn't seem possible, you know. I mean, obviously, a year ago, we knew how bad things were, and we we were let to we were yet to find out how how he was going to emerge. I think at that point, the the thought was, could he get back to a quality of life? You know, golf was far far in the background, but as you know, we we saw him play. Uh, with his son in December. And so that offered like a ray of hope. But look, he played 36 holes in a, in, in a cart in a scramble uh, on a flat golf course in December, four months away from trying to walk one of the most strenuous courses there was. And his own comments along the way have downplayed it. So the idea that he would be back here is pretty, pretty amazing. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, he's put in a good amount of, of work too. It's not like he's just sat out and hit balls. He's, Played nine holes of practice, three different days. Uh, he was up here last week uh, to to play the whole course, and they also played the par three. I think those are all good signs. I already saw the picture from earlier today. I guess when he when he teed off to start off his practice round, Bob, and I saw the amount of people that were around <laughs> Tiger Woods. How impactful is his return for the other golfers? Yeah, I mean, in a way, I think, well, first of all, I think most of them, you know, they, they, they welcome it. Um, it's, it's, uh, they, they respect what he's meant and admire him, and I think they're happy that he's, that he's here. And, and the other side of it is, for, especially the guys who you might consider the contenders, it's a, it, uh, it, it takes some of, the, some of the glare off of them, you know? I mean, let's be honest, this has become the Tiger Masters. Now there's not been a whole lot of chatter about the other guys going in. It's been so much focus on him and that's the way it always used to be. And, and I don't think any of us really expected it right now, but that's what we're dealing with. MGM just uh, tweeted something out kind of to this point. Tiger Woods currently leads the bet count in terms of the number of tickets that have been placed. Also the money count and is the largest liability right now to win the masters. He's listed at 50 to one. Bob, what do you think are realistic expectations here, though, for Tiger? Like, I, I just, as, as a fan of him, I just want him to try to make the cut. That's really all I'm hoping for at this point in time. But do you think he can actually compete this weekend? Yeah, look, you know, there's a reason why the bookies drive the nice cars. I mean, <laughs> I, I just don't think that that it's realistic that we're going to see him winning. Um, you know, I think making the cut is a great step. Uh, would be a huge accomplishment in itself. Um, you know, if he were to be on the fringe of con- contention, if he were within six shots or so going into Sunday, that would be remarkable. But I mean, to 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 win, you know, I just you're going up against guys that have been doing this, you know, that are that are that are seasoned, you know, and Tiger's not. There's a lot of competitive rust 
he's got to chip away. And typically you might want to try to do that at another tournament, um, you know, just to get a feel for it. You know, like Rory McIlroy played last weekend in Texas. He not bothered a bit by the fact that he missed the cut. You know, he just, he want, but he wanted a tournament the week before the Masters to get in a competitive mindset. You know, Tiger didn't even do anything like that. Hasn't played since the 2020 Masters in November. It's just a long time, and there's just no way to simulate it. You can play at home with your buddies. You can play for money. Let's be honest. Is any of that going to bother Tiger? You know, it's like it's just there's no way that it can feel the same until you tee off. And, and these guys are more used to it than he is, which is why I think that's such a tough ask. Um, but I wouldn't discount it just because because it's him. You know, I mean, you just you're, you're foolish if you completely rule it out. Uh, but, you know, common sense suggests this is going to be difficult. Bob, you've been watching a lot more of Tiger than I have over the years. Is there something about his style that when he hits a driver or an iron that you know he's on his game? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there, that's a great, a great point, great question, because, um, you know, Tiger has always been a, a world-class ball striker, especially with his irons. And they, it makes a certain sound, and it, it sounds different than other players, and it's it's kind of a neat sound. That, you know, he, you can tell he hits it flush, and that's what he was doing on the range yesterday, and, and on and on uh, on Sunday when he warmed up uh, mo- Monday before you know he went out for the nine hole practice round. And you could just tell he was clipping it perfectly, and um, now that doesn't mean he's going to do it during the tournament. But he, what he didn't want is to come here searching for his swing. You know, he didn't want to come here and not have not have it. Um, I, I think that part of it's in decent shape, and that was a big factor in all this. I don't think you you wanted to be concerned about your ability to walk. And oh, by the way, I'm I'm not hitting it on the club face. I don't know where it's going. That would have been that would have been tough too. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I I think from that standpoint. You just kind of know, you have this sense, yeah, he looks pretty good when he's hitting it. Sometimes these guys, you know, they're hitting it all over the place on the range, and you can tell that they're struggling. The difference between him and me is he can make that sound with his club. I just carry a sound effect on my phone that when I hit and it goes into the woods, Bob, I play that sound effect to make me sound better. <laughs> yeah, don't we all, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. Bob Herrig is our guest. He writes about golf for Sports Illustrated. You can check out his work. He's on Twitter, at Bob Herrig, H-A-R-I-G. Also, his book, Tiger and Phil, Golf's Most Fascinating Rivalry, available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Bob, I did want to ask you about that rivalry because it, it's it's wild to me that we're going to watch Tiger this week and we are not going to see Phil at the Masters. What is that going to be like, to not have Phil there this time around? Yeah, it's kind of strange. I mean, first time since 1994 uh, that he hasn't played in the Masters, and he missed it that year because he had a skiing accident uh, that spring. Uh, you know, in other words, you know, he's, he's just really – he's not missed the, the tournament due to any kind of injury like Tiger has. That was an injury that was not a golf injury. It was a fluke, you know. And um, so – uh, and, and, you know, to your question earlier about the odds, I mean, what would have been the odds of – Tiger being here and Phil not say at the beginning of the year, you know, it's completely flipped. Uh, and, and it's unfortunate what's going on with Phil and the reasons he's not here, the controversy surrounding the rival leagues and, 
um, his comments, and then he decided to take some time away. And now, you know, Phil's the reigning PGA champion. You know, he should have been reveling in that win. Uh, in fact, you know, had he had he had the same type of game that he had there, he uh, he maybe could have won here. You know, I mean, this is a place where Phil can be competitive still. And uh, so, from that standpoint, it's really a shame that he's not that he's not playing. Bob, I, we've got one more question for you. What's your maybe it's not your favorite, but what one of your favorite anecdotes? From your reporting on this book, the the rivalry between Tiger and Phil, what is one of your favorite anecdotes that you learned that people in our audience might not know about that rivalry? Yeah, actually, I learned something in the reporting of the book that I had never heard before. You know, I had heard a lot of the stories. I tried to get some things confirmed or, you know, found out and find out more about them. But one of them was the, the, um, the 2002 PGA Championship where where Tiger finished a shot behind Rich Beam. And Rich Beam, that was his last win. He only won three times on tour. He had a very hot summer. And Beam had a – he's a great guy, by the way. He does Sky TV. He's, he's still out here. He plays a little on the Champions Tour. But he had a six-shot lead with nine holes to go, and Tiger birdied the last four holes to make it interesting. And Beam sort of needed, needed to shake in a, a bogey on the last to win by one. He had a two-footer, two-three-footer on the last hole for a bogey. Uh, and, and he made it, and he had, did this little jig on the green. Well, Tiger was in scoring with Fred Funk uh, because he was playing in the group in front of him. And when, um, when, when Bean made the putt to win, Tiger st- stood up and like kind of gave a yell and did a fist pump. And Funk was like, what's going on? You know, Tiger, he just made the putt. You know, it's, he, it's over. You, he, he won. And all that Tiger said was, hey, that's – that's Rich Beam one and Phil Mickelson zero. And he just walked out. And like Tiger was just relishing the fact that a guy like Rich Beam, you know, who was not a heralded player, had a major and Phil didn't. And the fact that he kind of let that out was interesting. I mean, there was there was tension between those guys back in those days. And, you know, at that point, Tiger had eight majors. Phil didn't have any, you know, and and. I, I think he just sort of relished the idea of keeping a, a potential, uh, you know, well, a rival, a guy who could, could upset him uh, at bay, you know, and, and, and obviously it changed, you know, Phil, Phil started to win and Phil started to make it um, uh, a little bit more interesting there throughout the early 2000s and, and, and actually took some wins from the Tiger might have thought he'd get. So uh, I kind of tried to take you through all that over the years. I mean, they've been, They've been the top guys in the game for 25 years and and still to this day remain relevant. What an incredible story. You can find more like that over in the book, Tiger and Phil, golf's most fascinating rivalry. Uh, It is written by Bob Herrig. You can find his work as well over at Sports Illustrated. He'll be covering uh, the Masters this week down in Augusta, which is sure to be one hell of a scene. Bob, thank you so much for the time today. We sincerely appreciate it. Uh, We look forward to reading your work and your coverage of this year's Master, and hopefully we'll talk with you again soon. Thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate it. You got it. That's Bob Herrick joining us here on 101 ESPN. Uh, what an unbelievable story. And it, there are certain guys that just have that aura about them, Alex, where it's like they are going to win 
at all costs. And whether it's a real rivalry or something that I know we talked about this during the uh, Michael Jordan documentary where it's the, the last dance, it's like it can even be something that's completely made up. And maybe Tiger just built this up to be something in his head that it wasn't actually. Um, but him and Phil having this rivalry, I think, was part of what led to his ultimate success. Tom Brady was that way with him basically saying it's me against the world or the Patriots against the world. Jordan was that way. There are just certain guys that have that mindset that is it's just different and you can't really put your finger on exactly why or how or where it came from, but it's just different than other guys that are playing in their respective sports. I have that same rivalry with every golf ball that I tee up when I hit the golf course, thinking that I can hit it and you just can't. But I mean, he's the reason that I started to enjoy the game of golf and why I went out there with my dad, because I would spend Sundays during the masters around this time watching it with him. So the rivalry that he built with Phil Mickelson, um, the, the fire that he has on courses throughout championship uh, matches, Matches, it was always the thrill of a weekend to watch Tiger Woods in that in that rivalry. It's going to be exciting. I, I really can't wait to watch it, and I just hope that he's able to make the cut. And if he does, that's that's in and of itself is one hell of a win for Tiger Woods. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we're going to be joined by the Cardinals' former infielder and 2006 World Series MVP, David Eckstein. I want to catch up with him to get his thoughts on Albert Pujols' return to St. Louis, what it's going to be like to watch three of his former teammates going out, hopefully on top this year. David Eckstein coming up at 12:30. More likely to happen. Six five seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service text line coming up next you're on 101 ESPN we're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN what's more likely to happen they'll figure it out PK and Ferrario's most likely to happen Not good. No, I heard the end note of it. I thought that had like opening day vibes. Yeah. No, tomorrow will be better. The tomorrow will be singing. Believe it or not. So yeah, it will be better. Well, you will be singing. Believe it or not. I can't wait to do that in front of a crowd. And we'll be delayed. I'm not sick anymore. I've got the full voice capabilities. Problem last time. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're always sick. This is the sickest show in middays, guys. There you go. Six five seven eight zero is the air comfort service text line for more likely to happen. You give us two scenarios. We will tell you which one's more likely before we catch up with David Eckstein on the other side. Let's start with this one. We've got three of them here. Which one is most likely to happen? Harrison Bader has a 2020 season. Well, everyone has a 2020 season. Tyler O'Neill. Hits 35 home runs and steals 35 bases. Or excuse me, 35 home runs and 15 bases. My apologies. I misread that. I was like, wow. And Albert or Albert Pujols hits 21 homers to get to 700. So 2020 season for Bader, 35 homer, 15 stolen base season for O'Neal, or Albert gets to 21 homers and gets to 700 on the season. Oh, God. I'm going to go with Tyler O'Neal. I think that's more most likely to happen. Ooh, sorry. 35 home runs. I don't remember. I think I took the over in that one yesterday, but it was really close. I think that's easy. 15 is the one that I'm a little hesitant about because I just don't know how that's going to work. But I I think that's more likely than Bader getting the 2020 season and Albert getting 21. Oh, man. I I think Tyler O'Neill had 15 stolen bases last year. (laughs) He nearly had this. Is it bad that I almost, wow. I, I really debated Albert in the 21 home runs? Well, here's it, the thing. I really so, do. 
I I want to I want to give you guys this number. How many at bats do you think Albert's going to get this year? Two fifty. I was I was crunching some numbers on this. Two fifty. I think he gets more than that. I would take the over. Do you think he gets four hundred? And there's a reason I'm saying that. I would probably take the under on 400, but okay. it, I, I think that might be the right number. If you look at Pujols' career numbers, and I was looking at this last night, it, pretty much every year he's been around 5% for home runs in his home run rate. in his career. Even even last year when he was you know going against left-handed hitters only. If he gets to 400, 5% of 400 at-bats would be 20. So it would just need a couple that would give it a little bit extra oomph to get out of there for 700. I don't know if he'll get there because I kind of agree he'd be under 400 at-bats. Just something that to throw out there because I find that to be interesting. I think I would go Bader, though. I think he has the potential to have 20 home runs and get to 20 stolen bases. I think they're going to utilize him a lot on the base pass so more this context year. context here, Paul DeYoung last year had 114 games played and 355 at-bats. That seems about right to me for Pujols this year, going into the season. And that could change, and we'll see what the plan ends up being. And I mean, a lot of this is going to be determined by his like, own success. And that would be about 18 home runs if he stays at pretty much what his career norm is. is about Can 5% you imagine the final couple of weeks of the season if he's close? It'd be awesome. It, it would be awesome, but God, that's going to be a really tough job. If they are in the hunt for a playoff spot and they're going up against some hard tossing righties and Albert's like four home runs away from 700, I do not envy Oliver Marmol in that spot. That would be God, that'd be a tough spot to be in because yeah. the best the best way for you to do your job to win the most number of games in that spot is probably not starting Albert Pujols. But how do you not start Albert Pujols in that situation? That, that'd be tough, man. I really do not envy him. Uh, I would probably go. I don't see Bader getting 20 stolen bases. I think he could absolutely hit 20 home runs this year, but 20 stolen bases seems really tough. So I think I'm with you, Alex. I think I'd go Tyler O'Neill 35-15. That's a lot. It's a huge season, massive season, but I think I would probably go that route. Uh, 65780 is the air comfort service text line for more likely to happen. More likely the Blues lose in the first round or the Cardinals are under 500 by July 1st. Hmm. I'm going to go the Blues lose in the first round. I, I don't see how the Cardinals can be below 500 with this NL Central. And if they are, we're going to be, uh, I'm going to be, I'm just going to be terrible to deal with on the air because like, that's going to be What's so, new? wow, that's very true. That's <laughs> going to be, him. that's going to be so infuriating. I, I mean, I can see, I can see a scenario where Nashville keeps winning. Minnesota keeps winning and the blues bounce down to a wild card spot and they got to take on Calgary or Colorado um, I, I don't think they're going to lose in the first round. I think they'll be able to get through it, but I'm going to say that's more likely. Yeah, I think it's more likely it's the Blues, and, and it's pretty much on what you said. I I find it hard to believe the Cardinals could be below 500 in by July. It just seems I get it. There's question marks on that fifth starter spot. Surely that's not what tanks them down below, and I, I like the depth they have in the bullpen, so they should be able to survive off of it. The Blues, I just look at, and you know, they're playing better of late. I still view them as just a team that I, I don't know what they are. I just really don't. I know they like to play fast, and they're going to be a goal-scoring team, but does that work in the playoffs? I, I just don't know. In Minnesota, I like them with Marc-Andre Fleury. I like Calgary. I like Colorado. There's no ideal matchup in the playoffs, even though we said that Minnesota's the best one for them. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you guys. I think it's much more likely that the Blues end up losing in the first round of the playoffs. If the Cardinals are under 500, something horrible has happened. 
Now, we can have our disagreements on just how good they are, like the degree of good, I guess, if you will. This is a good team. It's going to be better than an 81-win team this year. And early on in the season, they've got a bunch of games that they're going to be playing against the Pirates. They've got two against the Royals early on. They've got some coming up against Cincinnati and the Cubs. Like, if they're not doing well in those games, and if they're struggling early on against so many games against the division, oh, buddy, it's going to be a long season for your St. Louis Cardinals. So I'd be really stunned if they end up below 500 on G- uh, July 1st. I'm going much more likely that the Blues end up losing in the first round of the playoffs. Final one here for more likely to happen. More likely to start for the Cardinals in the first round of the playoffs. Nolan Gorman or Juan Yepes? Neither looked good yesterday for Memphis. Yeah, not great. Um, I'm going to say more likely Gorman because I, I don't I don't see any scenario where somebody is going to be starting in a DH spot over Pujols or Dickerson if it's in the playoffs. Um, and that, to me, is where Juan Yepes is going to be playing. I can see Nolan Gorman playing second base if Tommy Edmond struggles. So I'm going to say Nolan Gorman. Yeah, I think it's Nolan Gorman because I could see him taking over for Edmond in season. I find Yepes, to me, this year... It's going to be in AAA and potentially a bench bat. I, I just don't ever see him being a guy that gets a long stretch as the designated hitter unless there's injuries, and I'm not going to bank on that for this this scenario. I think you guys are probably right. I just I look back to last year with Juan Yepes getting the call up for the playoff game, and I know that that faith in him is still there somewhere in the Cardinals organization. I think it comes down to Albert Pujols. If Pujols has a really good year, then there's no chance that Juan Yepes starts for them because they're both the right-handed bats. And that's why I'm so honestly confused in some ways as to why they didn't. I don't know what the A's wanted, but if the A's were willing to listen to offers of Juan Yepes for Sean Manaya plus some pitching prospects for the Cardinals, I just feel like that was a move that you kind of needed to make. But uh, I, I think it's clearly Nolan Gorman because there's a spot for him potentially in the infield. And if Corey Dickerson doesn't have the season that they're hoping for, that his salary is not such and he does not have a history here that is such that he could eventually be DFA'd if they needed to. I don't think they will, but they could if they needed to. So I think it's much more likely that Nolan Gorman would be the guy that gets the start in the playoffs. I think we're all in agreement there. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll dive into the junk drawer. But David Eckstein, excited to catch up with the former Cardinals infielder in the 2006 World Series MVP. Coming up next, you're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. catch up with the World Series MVP. We're able to do that right now. Thrilled to go out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line a day before opening day where Albert Pools is going to be back in the Cardinals lineup. We're catching up with David Eckstein, the former Cardinals infielder and 2006 World Series champion, World Series MVP. David, we appreciate the time, man. Thank you so much for hopping on with us today. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We're thrilled to have you on. So I, I just want your initial reaction when you heard Albert Pujols, your former <laughs> teammate, is back wearing the birds on the bat. What was your reaction? I mean, I was so excited. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I, my wife was doing a lug live. So we were selling handbags on, on, on like live on the Internet. And all of a sudden someone put in a question, what do you think about Albert coming back? And I Googled it right then. And I was so excited because... You know, as soon as as soon as everything went happened in the off season, it was the perfect fit. And I was talking to some, you know, some of my friends within the organization. I was like, I hope they sign Albert. I hope 
most times Albert. And I'm glad he did because this is where he needs to be. All right, David, be honest with me now, though. You saw Albert coming back, Yachty and Wayno's final year. Are you thinking yeah. about just coming out of retirement? <laughs> I had an MRI on my knee today, so I don't think that's going to be an uh, <laughs> opportunity. And I'm a little bit older than, than, than the three of them. But, no, I I thought, I mean, how cool was the photograph when they when they all arrived? They took it and put it up on the website of the three of them walking in. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's been a while oh, since TLR was in the game as well, David. You yeah. guys are very similar in terms of your timeline, so it wouldn't yeah. be that crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> like I always say, it's a one, I, I could probably play for one day. And then it'll be the fact that it'll be there 161 more after that. There would be a problem. Uh, I love that, though, David. It's phenomenal. And just seeing those guys back on the field is going to be great. Yeah. But big picture here, David, and I know you, you yeah. stay in contact with people in the Cardinals organization. You yeah. pay attention. What do you make of this team going into the season now with Albert and with Yachty and Wayno and with the roster they have in place? Well, well, you know, first, I mean, I'm I'm happy that you know they they, they did it for Wayno and and also Yachty, bringing them back as well. Um, I love their division. I love their division. They're in the perfect spot. Um, you know, to be able to make a run at this thing, you know, I mean, Milwaukee has very good pitching, but everyone else is rebuilding. And so they had that chance to be able to get in. And the, the key is finding a way to get into the playoffs and then anything can happen. And I know um, just looking at, it, I know they have a little bit of the pitching issues right now from what people are trying to say, but I, I like their division and I like their chances. David Eckstein is our guest here on 101 ESPN. David, I'm curious, if you were the coach of this team, how difficult would it be on a night-in, night-out basis for you to be like, ah, you know what, we're not going to put Albert Pujols in the lineup today? <laughs> uh, I know, I know. Well, the one thing about it, even everything, my brother had a, had a good conversation with Albert when he went over to L.A. last year, you know what I mean? He understands his role, and his role has changed a little bit. And, you know, he, he can be that thread off the bench you know, late in the game when you can match him up and, and just be able to pick the right situation to do it. So he understands his role a lot more. But, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, if they didn't start him on opening day, I think you would have been, <laughs> there would have been something going on in St. Louis. <laughs> and so, but, yeah, you know, and, you know, we all just wish the best for him and, 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 and the club. David, you spent three seasons playing with Albert, and then, of course, you, you played against him during your career in Major League Baseball. Uh, is there a moment that still sticks out to you about Albert, just the, the dominance that he had on baseball? Um, I mean, the thing is, what people don't understand is how hard he actually works. You know what I mean? Because, oh, man, he just shows up and plays. But when I, when I came over to the organization and, and just saw how hard he worked, especially on his defense, you know, with Jose Oquendo going out there and becoming – you know, the gold glove first baseman, but then, then inside the cage and what he did and how he went about his routine every single day to be the best on the field. That, that's the stuff that sticks out. But, you know, the, 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 mo the best moment is, you know, obviously in Houston when he hit the home run for Bradley. <laughs> that, that, that's still a, I mean, my favorite, how do you silence, you know, how many, 40, 50,000, whatever is in there. And, and so that's still my one of my favorite moments. We've, we've talked to Brad Osmus a few times about that <laughs> moment since, David. We talked to him a couple of times last year. And every time he's like, I just, it literally went from pandemonium inside of that stadium to you could literally yeah. hear a pin drop whenever that, yeah, it, whenever the ball dropped. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> 
David Eckstein is our guest for another couple of minutes here on 101 ESPN. Uh, David, when you look at this team, I mean, I, it's crazy yeah. how many connections to uh, the yeah. 06 Cardinals and then right yeah. thereafter as well are, are now a part of the team once again. Skip Schumacher in particular right. comes to mind for me. Uh, yeah. what, have you talked to him since his return to the Cardinals? And what's this going to be like in your mind yeah. to have him on the bench? I have not, but I um, but uh, I know because I, I was just I was in San Diego yesterday. And I had, you know, one of my friends who was the BP thrower there, you know, I was with him yesterday and he's like, they, they loved him. They love what he did. And they were kind of shocked that he didn't get the job over in San Diego and stuff. So like, you know, I mean, what he has become since playing, cause he's always been that hard nosed type of player and understood and and his versatility within the game allowed him to see many multiple positions and understand the game at a truly higher level. And the one thing that they say, he connects with the players. He absolutely connects with the players and, and understands. And so I think, I think it's a great fit. You know, we were all excited, uh, you know, when all this was going down. And, and I know um, Oliver got the, got the managing job. And that actually, he actually graduated from the same high school that my wife graduated. He's a little bit younger, but um, yeah, but um, yeah. So it's kind of, it's kind of cool, the, all the connections that are there. But yeah, I was so happy for Skip. You know, he's really made his way in the game. Um, especially on the coaching side. David, I was going to ask you that. Have you had any run-ins with Ali Marmol, whether it was your playing career or post-playing career? I have not. Um, I had, um, the only thing, I, I have not had any run-ins with him, but he, a guy I'm very close with, um, actually played for him uh, um, for Palm Beach. So I was, that's my only connection that I had with him, but yeah. I have not had any run-ins with gotcha. him yet. Well, well, and you mentioned um, Day, uh, Skip Schumacher's uh, ability yeah. to, you know, connect with the with the players. You've been on that both sides, David, yeah. as a player and, and as a, a coach. How important is it to have somebody like that in your in your dugout that can connect with these players, whether young or old? Well, I, I would say like the, the best bench coaches are, do that do that because the manager is the one that has to be a little bit more force for a little bit more leadership. But then it's the bench coach that comes in and goes, Hey, this is what we're looking for. You mean we had that, you know, um, basically that, that was Joe Madden in, in, um, in Anaheim with Mike Sosha. You know what I mean? So you have the guy under coming in and just be so like understanding, you know, Joe Bettini, when I was there with the Cardinals, you, you mean, cause it, it just helps to, with the communications and everyone understanding their roles. And so, and when you develop that, that personal relationship and that connection with the players, it just helps everything close. Because as you see in today's game, you don't know what the starting line is going to be, you know, and it's coming from upstairs. And so it's the ability to, to relay the messages and to make, to make the players understand so they still go out there and give you everything they have on a daily basis. I'm so glad you mentioned the, the, it's coming from upstairs point because yeah. that is something that has changed immensely in baseball right. since from the time where you came into the league 20 years ago to where we are today, the front office almost has, I mean, probably double to triple who, who, who only knows how much more right. power than they once did. What is that like as a player or what do you think it would be like as a player um, to play for a team now when you know so many of the decisions are being made based on the numbers as opposed to based on the feel as they were one once upon a time? Right. Yeah. I mean, it is a little bit challenging, but you kind of know what you're, what you're getting into. And so that's, that's one of the things that's kind of funny. It's like, it, um, do you actually change it? And, you know, cause the manager's role is different now. And I've, and I've said this cause people are like, Oh, would you ever think of managing? Oh, well, the manager's actually in upstairs, either the GM or the president now. And so, and, and that's where the game's at. And so as the player, 
they kind of understand that. I think that's what we kind of saw within the lockout. So if you actually broke down a lot of the players' grievances, is is the sense of like I'm based I'm based on part. I mean, my value is based upon my war, and my war is subjective. You know, I mean, they want to say it's it's not. I mean, it's they want to say that oh, there's there's no bias in analytics. And so if I was with the Pirates organization, I saw the bias. I saw the bias within the numbers. And so that's what the players were talking about. So it just depends how each group of club analyzes data. Because we would have players in Pittsburgh, their war will be way less than if you pulled up on baseball reference what their war was. So it's what each team values. So that's, the, that's, the, that's probably the challenging thing for the players going into it. You know, like, hey, just watch me play. You know what I mean? But at the end of the day, you know, when the statistical analysis comes into the game, you know what I mean? That's going to tell you whether you play or not. Speaking of challenges, David, uh, you spent your career as a leadoff hitter in Major League Baseball, mm-hmm. and, D- and Dylan Carlson, the young outfielder, is getting yeah. an opportunity to do that. Uh, what's the what's the mindset you have to have as the leadoff hitter, and is that going to be a difficult transition for Carlson this year? <laughs> um, well, once again, like the, the, the game has changed from where I was at um, to where, where it's at now because – you know, I was a guy that, oh, man, I need to work the count. I need to find a way to get on base, just to make the pitcher work. So, you know, the guy sitting behind me, depending on who it was, Larry to Albert, um, you know, Jimmy hit second two at times. And so it was one of those things that it was a, it's a different format because now, because I was, I was a special assistant for the Pirates for two years, and it's like, man, pitching's so good, you can't miss that first pitch fastball if you're going to get it. So the thing for Dylan is to make sure that, you know, he just be, he, he's himself. You know what I mean? Because the role is different, and he's a different type of hitter. Mind he has some, you know, he can hit the ball out of the park and stuff. So, and that's where the game's going. You're seeing like, you know, in Anaheim, Shonae's leading off. You know, so the game has changed in that sense. So it's a different type of role. But the biggest thing is that he needs to play to his strength that makes him successful. And if that's, you know, swinging on the first pitch or or taking a pitch, it, it has to be him. Um, playing his role. David, final question that I've got for you. We've had at least three different people on the text yeah. line text <laughs> something about this in. What's going on with that sweet 2006 Toyota that you got as the World <laughs> Series MVP? Is that still in your garage? The, the, the Corvette that I want? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The, you know, I gave it to my brother Rick. Oh, there we oh, go. I, I, yeah, so he has it. It's in, it's in Georgia right now. It's at his home. I actually visited him about a month ago. So I saw the car, and it's still good. It, I think it just turned 11,000 miles. So, I mean, it, it's in tip-top shape. Did you tell him, David, that he has to call it the MVP ride? <laughs> I think he calls it that himself. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, because, um, no, he loves cars. And I am, as people know, I'm not a car guy. And. <laughs> I just need something to get me from A to B, and and he's taking very good care of it. Well, so. yeah, if it's only got 11,000 miles on it, David, Fantastic. I, I asked, what are the scenarios in which he's taking that out? Like, is that a date night car? Is that a yeah, guy a road trip night. kind of thing? What's going on? He, he took he took my um, my niece on, like, the first day of, of preschool in it, you know, just stuff like that. <laughs> he does the slow yeah. drives around the neighborhood and waves, <laughs> like, I'm in the MVP ride, everybody. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah and... And because the cool thing about the car, they um, Chevrolet gave me another five thousand dollars to engrave it. So inside the the seats, it, it actually says um, two thousand six World Series. Oh my gosh! And it, and it and it has my autograph. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> yeah, so both seats have it in it. That's tremendous. Yeah. Hey, David, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much yeah. for the time today. We we always yeah. appreciate being able to catch up with you. Uh, hopefully, we'll talk with you again soon. 
Definitely. Well, thank you guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Absolutely. David. Same to you. That's David Eckstein joining us here on 101 ESPN, 2006 World Series MVP, former Cardinals infielder. Man, I, it's kind of wild when you catch up with somebody like that. You, you kind of remember, and I know we've talked about it, but I, I think it was two years ago we talked with John Mosaloc about the secret sauce of the Cardinals and that it's it's the older veterans that are able to come back right at the time. It, God rest their souls. But he was talking about guys like Bob Gibson and Lou Brock being able to come in and like Gibby talking to Jack Flaherty Chris about Carpenter. things. Yeah, all, all those guys and uh, Lou Brock just giving him tips about how to steal bases like that. That's part of the secret sauce. And I think in some ways the Cardinals are kind of getting back to those roots with a guy like Oliver Marmol, who was part of this organization. He grew, he grew up basically within the Cardinal structure. And then you're able to bring back Skip Schumacher. And you look at some of the guys that are now around the club. I know Matt Holliday's always available to those guys. Jim Edmonds always available to those guys if they need it. That, that's part of, I think, what leads to some of the excitement going into this year is seeing them return to some of those roots. And it it started with Mike Schultz. Credit to him. He got them back to some of that stuff, especially with the defense and the base running that he made sure to prioritize. Uh, I think that's the main sauce that should be for this Cardinals team to have those guys around because the ability to have all of those different minds, like even I saw on uh, on Frank Cusimano's sportscast a couple of nights ago, Whitey Herzog talking about the best way to utilize Albert Pujols as a DH, like to have to have those guys to be able to to send down their wisdom and and instill it into that young clubhouse, man. That's just, in my opinion, that's huge. And other teams don't have that. Somebody from the three one four said, "Is this the best coaching staff ever in terms of names? Skip Stubby Pop Ollie." That's tremendous. Sounds like, an, <laughs> sounds like a Tony Hawk video game. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we continue our countdown of the 20 most important players for 2022. I think we timed this off a little bit wrong. Tomorrow's opening day. Today, we're doing number four. We'll get to that coming up in about 15 minutes. The junk drawer coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario. Every year, this time of the year, I love finding out what the new food options are out of Bush Stadium. It's one of my favorite things, Alex. That's one of your favorite things? It's one of my favorite things All in the right. world. Let's go. Opening day is one thing. Opening day and finding out what's new out there to eat. That That <laughs> is my thing. That so, is my So niche. we're going to lose BK tomorrow, T-Bone, once the, once the front gates open at Bush. T-Bone, oh, BK is going to be running around trying to figure out what he can eat. So here's what we got. You guys tell me if you're in or out on these. I know we play that on Monday. We're going to do say, that during today, the junk drawer here today on BK and Ferrari. Can we just skip Believe It or Not tomorrow and do that there? So the options that you've got this year that are new to Bush Stadium, this comes from Katie Wu of The Athletic. Mm. Nana's Italian beef sandwich. I'm in. Shaved prime rib of beef, grilled and seasoned with Italian spices, dipped in au jus, topped with provolone cheese. Ah! You can add red peppers, onions, and some peppers. Oh, wow. On this St. Louis favorite, it is available near sections 151, 189, 434, and the new top of the fifth stand near gate Does it say what type of bread? Does not. I would imagine. If it's it's like one of those those breads from the hill. Well, 
I don't know if that's going to be the it's case. It's an Italian but... beef sandwich, yeah, PK. Yeah, yeah, you got to put some in or out on the Nana's Italian beef. Are you kidding me? I'm in on this. You put a little Nana's Italian beef in there, huh? Do you think you could do this in the summer, or is this more of a like spring and fall? This is spring fall. Oh, I think so too. Yeah, you don't you don't I need beef when it's 95, 95 degrees outside. Yeah. So I know a lot it's of meat people. Sweats. One of the if you go to a, a ballpark, let me try this again. Take two. If you're going to the Cardinals game at Bush Stadium, a lot of people love going to get the Chinese food. The line is always long yeah. at the Chinese spot there. I can't do it, guys. It's 100 degrees out there. What are we doing eating Chinese food when it's 127 degrees yeah, with the heat index? There are certain foods you can't can do eat it. outside when it's very hot, and those fall into that category. All right, next one up. This might be up your alley as well, Alex. What's that supposed to mean? Grilled meatballs. Oh, yeah, I'm in. Two exciting flavors, one of which roasted garlic marinara, the other of which is, for me, barbecue style. Oh, I'm, yeah. Served atop fresh kettle-cooked chips as part of the Grand Slam Mixed Grill Box. Great for sharing. Available at the Terrace Grill in Section 428. There's another piece of food that you just can't, that you got to do it now <laughs> and stop in June and then start back up in September because there's no he- way in hell that I'm eating a big fat meatball when it's 95 degrees outside. So here you go. Here's another one. Are you guys in or out on the grilled grilled meatballs? Are though? you kidding me? Forget about it. I'm in on a grilled meatball. Come on. I'm in as well. Forget about it means I was in, by the way. I know. It's Italian I know. for St. Yes. Louis barbecue nachos is another oh, option that has been added. I don't need any more. Yeah, they Cold get soggy. pork smoked in-house with barbecue sauce, crispy nacho chips, spicy jalapeno cheddar cheese. Shake on some barbecue spice <gasps> available at the Broadway barbecue stand in section 109. Okay, but here's the deal. You got to promise me that they're going to stay good chips like they're gonna get soggy and then they're nasty you know no you just gotta eat them quick man yeah, here's yeah, the how fast you can you eat nachos man oh dude oh you- sorry i'm not like you guys the rich ones with a full row of teeth i have to chew on one side of my mouth one didn't, chip at a time man didn't know you had to be rich too. to have a full set of teeth my buddy yeah. asked me that the other day he goes how long are you gonna milk the fact you don't have teeth and i said as long as i can i guess so it's still working uh next one up i'm in on the st louis barbecue oh, nachos yeah. although i do feel like we've already got plenty of nachos that are available yeah, out there but none of the other ones have the barbecued meat on top of they it. do have the pulled pork though they've got those available for you in a helmet which makes it you know just add that much more oomph in it that's available in section 109 by the way this is another one pop pop hooray Gourmet popcorn. Sounds like T-Bones. What? No, I'm out on this one. Not uh, a big popcorn guy. Other well, than at home. We are excited to add this local family-owned gourmet popcorn company and their great products to Bush Stadium. They will feature four fe- four flavors. Cheddar, red caramel, caramel or caramel. What do you guys go with there? Caramel. I go caramel as well. I don't know why I just said caramel. Well, you said caramel. Kettle corn and stadium mix, which is cheddar and red caramel. All the popcorn is made with premium non-GMO ingredients. It's gluten-free, Alex. It's good for you. And popped in 100% coconut oil. This is right up my alley, baby. Available in the Coke Corner near gate number one. This is my, this is for me. You would be a gourmet popcorn kind of person. 100%. Right? Like this, this is the guy who who left the spot we were at. I was like, I can find me a nice sandwich on rye bread. You are a gourmet popcorn. I'm out on this. I'm only I'm only a popcorn. You were out on St. Louis barbecue nachos because you were scared they were going to get soggy. Not I'm scared. the one that's too not horny scared. I'm not a soggy nacho kind of person. I like crisp chips in this one. That's fair. Crisp chips. I only do popcorn when I'm watching a movie. All right, this next one. This one feels right for a, a game in mid-June. Oh, yeah? 
Cardinals versus maybe Pirates. Dodgers out there. Oh, not Pirates. Taking in some good baseball. And I'm going to get me a Pirates. Island Freeze frozen drinks. Ooh. Cool Tell down to the ballpark this. this summer with a bevy of frozen drinks served in two collectible take-home cups. A 16-ounce mason jar or a 20-ounce half yard. What the hell Takes is me that? back to Vegas. The long oh, 20 ounce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love those. Choose one of our uh, delicious frozen flavors of mix and match. Create your own vacation on your hand. Available near section 160. It doesn't say what the flavors are specifically say, for this alcohol? one. That I don't know. I would have to imagine it yeah, is. You're right? going long necks. It's got to be. I would think so. Yeah. That I'm very much in for. Big you mason can- jar guy, too, by the way. Are you? Yeah, I love me some mason jars. Red Lobster, when I used to work there, had strawberry shortcakes in mason jars. And I used to eat all of them. <laughs> that checks Fun out, buddy. Fun fact about me. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, if you could only have one of these. The Nana's Italian beef sandwich, grilled meatballs, St. Louis barbecue nachos, pop pop parade, gourmet popcorn, and the Island Freeze frozen drinks. Which one are you going with? That's why he wants the pop pop parade, so he can keep saying it like that. <laughs> Quick question before I answer this. Do you order food the way it's named? So, like, if it's called the Pop Pop Parade, you walk up to the counter and say, hey, I'd love a uh, bag of the the, the caramel Hot Pop Parade. Now you want caramel. See? Well, you did it. I don't know how it happens. Because I get made fun of all the time. I order at McDonald's the Filet-O-Fish. And, like, why don't you just call it a fish sandwich? Because it's called a Filet-O-Fish. Yeah, I would probably do that. Okay. By the way, I'm going the the uh, going the Nana's Italian beef. That checks out. Give me that I, stuff. I think I'm doing that when it's fall and spring. When it gets into the summer, I'm going with the nachos. I think. Not the popcorn. No. The pop pop parade. I don't. I, I don't know why. I don't view popcorn you as like a, a baseball thing. Oh like, really? Like watching baseball. I don't think. Okay. What do you I'm most associate with a baseball game? Hot like dog. the number one like snack Hot or food. Dog. Oh, the Hot snack. Dog. I'd probably say nachos or a pretzel. Peanuts too. Peanuts. Peanuts for me for sure. Because I usually just get a bag of those as soon as I walk in the building, and then a crisp. Bushlight, yeah. yeah. No, Budweiser. Yeah, the Bushlight is my go-to. You know why he wants the pop pop parade, T-Bone? Because it's, it's cooked in coconut oil. I wish you would have read. I wish you would have read all these with that kind of tone. Oh, wish shaved you. prime rib beef, grilled and seasoned Italian with Italian beef spices. With a little Italian we done here? We done here, boys? We done here? Well, what nice... are we going to talk about next? If it, if, it depends on what we're talking it's about. It's dipped in a nice fresh anjou. That's pretty good. BK, and I like Number to four on our list sandwiches. of the 20 most important Cardinals next. Do you have any Dijon mustard? <laughs> We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. And now, the 20 most important Cardinals for the 2022 season on BK and Ferrario. Number four, Paul Goldschmidt. Number four on our list of the 20 most important Cardinals for 2022 is Paul Goldschmidt. Alex had him on his list at number three. Tanner and I both had him at number four on our list of the 20 most important Cardinals. Last season was spectacular. He basically was the same guy that he was in Arizona the last few years when he was an all-star. Finished the season with an 
880 OPS, just basically picked up where he left off in 2020 in that shortened season with the Cardinals. 31 home runs, 99 RBI, hit 295 for the year. And Alex, that was despite the fact that he had a really tough start to the season. If you remember the home opener last year, Goldie wasn't even in the lineup because he was dealing with back tightness. That's not like him. He's a guy that tries to play every day if he can finish the year playing 158 games for the Cardinals. If he starts off hot coming off of the spring that he had where he hit 500 with an OPS over 1600, man, imagine what the possibilities are for Paul Goldschmidt this year. Yeah, this is why I had him at number three. Uh, I mean, it's no coincidence that this team went on a 17-game win streak and he was one of the key contributors. What was it? He, it was it was September, October that he did it. He had nine home runs and a uh, over 1,000 OPS. Like The guy was a monster for this team. It, without Paul Goldschmidt, and this is why I had him up so high. This team might be sitting at a low, below 500 record in the first portion of the season if they don't have him in the lineup. I just think he's too impactful defensively. He's too impactful offensively. And even off the field, I think he's now taken over as one of those leaders in the clubhouse with with Yachty and Wayno. So I almost called him Wadi, which would not have been good. But if they don't have Paul Goldschmidt playing at his top peak performance, this team's going to struggle this season, which is why I had him up so high. Yeah, and you know, when we made the list, Jack Flaherty wasn't hurt. And honestly, I probably would have bumped him up from four if I if I Agreed. knew about the Flaherty injury because he's one of those guys that you look at and you mentioned, I mean, he struggled mightily in the first month of the season. And part of that probably was due to the back injury. I, I think you can point to that probably being the issue. But he's historically a slow starter when it comes to it. He moves from the warm weather and he comes up here where it's cold and St. Louis can be in 50s on opening day. And he has a little bit of time where he has to adjust and get used to it. And then he explodes in the next month. If he can continue what he's doing in spring training, he has the potential of being a guy that finishes not just in the MVP voting, but top five, top three in MVP voting based on the way he played at the end of the year last year. If you can just stitch together the first couple months and just be a little bit better, he's one of those guys that you look at and go, he's an MVP caliber candidate. And the reason I would have bumped him up had I known about the Jack Flaherty injury is because he's that guy I'm going to be circling on that lineup card in this first month while they're without Jack Flaherty. And when we're going to be talking about this pitching staff so much and how it's going to be tested, and especially because pitchers aren't stretched out that much and Cardinals carrying all these extra pitchers to try and uh, protect the pitching staff because of that, there's going to be a big burden that's going to be on the offense. And part of it is going to go on Paul Goldschmidt's shoulders, and that's why I would have bumped him up had I known about the Jack Flaherty injury. The projections on Goldie are surprising to me. Fangraphs and baseball reference are both right around the same range. They're projecting him to finish this season with right around a 270 batting average, 350 on base percentage, and an OPS of 810 this year. Dang. That would include 28 doubles and 25 home runs. Oh, I think he's totally going to be better than that. If that's what they get out of Paul Goldschmidt this year, the lineup is not going to meet the expectations that I know I have for them. He's got to be a guy that finishes this season with 30 home runs right around there, an OPS of 850 or higher. I mean, he's got to be a, I mean, you guys mentioned the MVP voting. He's got to be somebody that finishes the year with at least votes in the MVP uh, award voting. If he's finishing less than 28 home runs, I think you might be talking a little bit differently about this offense. Absolutely. I mean, because you got to have, I mean, he should be number two. He should be fighting for number two 
with Nolan Arenado and, and Tyler O'Neill because I think one of those two are going to finish first. My bet is on a Nolan Arenado. Paul Goldschmidt should be fighting for that second spot in most home runs this season. Yeah, you should have three guys in your lineup this year that have MVP consideration. Absolutely. Like the, that's what happened last year. It's the and only way you're going to hit the peak for this Cardinal season. Those guys propped up the offense and then everybody else filled in around them. And that's where I want to get to here, Alex, to finish up this segment. Moving on from Paul Goldschmidt. The 5-6-7 spot in the order. I thought there was an interesting quote yesterday from Ben Fredrickson in his chat over on the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. He said, labeling the 5-6-7 stretch of the li- in the lineup as make or break seems fair to me. That is the stretch of the lineup that will that tends to thump for the great teams, hold its own for good teams, or fizzle out for the bad teams. I agree with that. I've always said that the spot in the lineup that I will judge your offense based upon is your six-hole hitter. If your six-hole hitter is a stud, like if Max Muncy, for example, is batting sixth for you, holy bleep, that is an absurd lineup. What if it's Me- Paul DeYoung? Meanwhile, for the Cardinals mm-hmm. over the over recent years, it's been like Yachty or Molina batting fifth, and that's no shot against Yachty. He's just not a guy that, at this point in his career, should be batting fifth for you. At one point, definitely. Now, no. Or Paul DeYoung is batting down there. Or you've had like Harrison Bader batting sixth for you. If they've got guys batting five, six, seven this year that are... It might be Paul DeYoung again, but hopefully having a better season. And then whether it be Albert Pujols or Corey Dickerson on any given day as the DH spot, that that feels better to me. But you look at what they got from those spots in the order last year, Alex. They were ninth in the National League in OPS Plus from their five-hole hitters. They were seventh from their six-hole hitters. That's the part of the order that has to improve this year. Goldie, they need something similar. O'Neal, they need something similar. Arenado needs something similar as what they got from those guys last year. It's really that five and six spot in the order that has to be better. I agree with that. So let me ask you guys this, though, then. So then what's the take on Phillies? Because the Phillies are going to have that. Phillies are going to have a damn good-looking batting order, but everyone's Gotta concerned about their defense. Got to pick it. Yep. I, I, I don't I don't trust a team that can't play defense. Man, but I mean, when you're talking about having a Kyle Schwarber or something like that hitting in a five or six spot, that's dangerous. But you're right. That, I will be stunned for what it's worth before we move off of the Phillies. I will be stunned if they don't have a top five offense in the National League. Absolutely stunned. That's why, I mean, as much as I people have been talking about the Mets, I'm higher up on the Phillies than I am the Mets going into this season because... You take Jacob DeGrom or Max Scherzer out of that lineup, you're talking about a team that looks great on paper but doesn't live up to expectations. But I can do the same thing for the Phillies. If you take out Aaron Nola or Zach Wheeler from their their rotation, I don't feel good about it. It it can, definitely, but I've watched the Phillies. We've all watched the Phillies long enough now that we've seen the bullpen's going to be a disaster. It always is. It it just finds a way to fail them over time. That's why Joe Girardi has gray hair. And it's going to be even no worse hair. when you've got a defense behind them that includes Kyle Schwarber, Nick Castellanos, Didi Gregorius, Gene Segura. Like they, hey, Didi's they, great. They are just so bad defensively, man. I mean, it, it really has the potential to be one of the worst defenses that we've seen for a contending team ever. Should we put a six-pack down on this? I think the Phillies are going to be better than the Mets this year. I, I would be ha- Yeah, let's do that. And yeah. I'm going to take the Braves over all of them, so... Okay, well, that's not a part of the bet, so thanks for ruining it. The Braves it. are probably... Well, I picking the NL East winner, <laughs> because that's what the Mets conversation's about. Do you guys agree, though, with that take from Ben Fredrickson I, that I the 5 six, seven spot in the order is how you're going to evaluate this team? Absolutely, and I, and I apologize for, for navigating off of that topic there, but I do believe that that is a, a true statement this year because you're going to be looking at the DH, you're going to be looking at Paul DeYoung, and you're going to be looking at either Harrison Bader or Yachty or Molina. And, I mean, as much as we put these guys, Paul Goldschmidt, Tyler O'Neill, Nolan Arenado at the top five of our our most important players they are important and if you don't have them you're losing 
But if any of those three names that we just said struggled, you're going to be talking about a season that the Cardinals were looking for last year of like, okay, we got these guys hitting, but then what the hell are we doing beyond that? Because Paul Goldschmidt's numbers were great in June. And the team in June was still really awful. So if you don't have the guys that are hitting behind the the big three, you're still talking about a struggle for this team. I would agree with this, and I'm mostly circling the five and six spot. That seven one I'm not really worried about because it almost feels like it's the defensive position with putting Yachty in that seventh spot, and they want speed in Bader and Edmund in the eight nine spot to be ahead of the big bats in this order. But five and six is where I'm going to be circling because when when we talked about it all off season, and I, I we brought it up, you know. Who the heck is batting fifth? Do you trust Paul DeYoung to bat fifth? Not really. Do I trust him to bat sixth? I feel a little bit more comfortable there with his 30 home run potential batting sixth, but he can't hit 196 for you, definitely. and then you rely on that power. So that's definitely the sixth spot. And then that five spot is you just don't know what you're going to get from Corey Dickerson, Albert Pujols, maybe Lars Newbars in that spot, but I don't know if he'd hit as high as fifth. But Pujols is the one that I'm going to have circled. He looks great in spring training. I would expect him to be a guy that was going to provide for you in that number five spot. And Dickerson's the one I'm circling because his numbers have actually kind of started to tick down as he's gotten older in his career. So I'm very interested to see how he looks against right-handed pitching. The reason I find it so interesting is because it's almost that bridge. We, we've talked about this with the rotation as well. I feel really good about the Cardinals one through four. I feel pretty darn good about what they're going to have seven through nine right now as well with Yachty, Bader, and Edmund. I think those guys are pretty darn good for those spots in your order. It's just a matter of how do you piece that together with five six. I think Pujols and Dickerson are going to be five in that five, fine in that five spot. What are you getting out of Dion? And we've talked about it so many different times. He is the guy that will determine the ceiling for this team. I think they're going to be fine either way, regardless of if he is good or if he is bad this year, because you have some fail safes there with Tommy Edmond and also Edmundo Sosa. I think those guys are at a minimum can be okay. They can be capable defenders and solid hitters for you anywhere, wherever you need them. But the ceiling for this team, it, it is based upon him being the guy that can return to a 30 home run hitter and batting 240 ish for you. If he can be that and he's batting sixth for you, that's how you, he becomes your, Gene Segura or Didi Gregorius. He's matching up one for one with those guys at the sixth spot in the Phillies lineup. That's how you become that if you're the Cardinals. Coming up next, speaking of the Zips Zips projections, they're pretty high on this Cardinals team. And they're also pretty down on the rest of the National League. What does that mean? How does that influence the way we look at the Cardinals? Talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. fast lane yesterday as i typically do you can hear that weekdays from two to six right here on 101 espn and bt and stalter i thought i had another good conversation about how we view the cardinals and how it relates back to the divisions here's here's what they had to say about the cardinals the brewers and what this year is going to look like how many wins do you think it's going to take to win the central this year 92 how many wins can the cardinals have this year in your opinion 92 all right, I was going to say 100, but I like the way that you're looking. It might be 100, BT, because this division is that bad. How does, in your opinion, Alex, the division influence the way that you look at this Cardinals team? Do you view them differently because the division is so bad? A little bit. I mean, man, 100 seems a, a lot, but BT knows better than I do. I, I just know that every time... He, the, he was kidding. <laughs> was he? Okay, good. Yeah. I just know every time the Cardinals play against Pittsburgh or Cincinnati... 
everyone's like, oh, this will be a clean sweep. And then Pittsburgh comes out and takes two of three, and people are thinking the sky is falling. Uh, Looking at the pitching staffs, though, for those two teams, it doesn't scare me. And what's the one thing we're confident about with this club? It's the fact that their offense can be very dangerous. So uh, I think stacking up in the NL Central, I personally think the Cardinals are the best option, even better than the Milwaukee Brewers. And I think when it comes to -to head-to-head matchups, the Cubs are going to cause the Cardinals problems. Milwaukee's going to cause them problems. But for the first time in a long time, I do feel like Cincinnati and Pittsburgh seems like easy, winnable games for this team. And that's why I will look at this team differently based on the division is because and they talked about this on the fast lane yesterday I thought it was a great point you know they may have 95 wins let's say let's say they win 95 and they win the NL Central but it may not they may not legitimately be a 95 win team it's because they're going to beat up on the Pirates the Reds the Cubs we hope and we hope and they should and, and that's where it becomes difficult to evaluate the team is because it's not like look the NL East could could be as bad as it was last year when we thought it was going to be the deepest division. But you could see that there are some good teams there right now when you look on paper. And you could see three teams battling for first place. So you could see a team that wins, I don't know, 91 games and go, wow, they may, they're probably better than that. It's just it's that tough a division to be playing in. The Cardinals, you'll probably look at it the tough that's a little bit differently. You're going to look at them and you're going to have to kind of figure out what was, okay, what are we actually really good at? And how much of this do we play into? Okay, we were playing the Pirates, we were playing the Reds a lot, and that contributed to a lot of the victories we got. So the reason why I wanted to ask this today is because Fangraphs put out their projections yesterday for the National League, who's going to win X number of games, right? What the, what the projection standings are going to be. You know how many teams in the National League had a better chance to make the playoffs and win the World Series than the Cardinals did? National League, how many teams do you think had a better chance to make the playoffs and win the World Series than the Cardinals. I'd say two. I was going to go three. I think it's the Braves, Mets, Dodgers. See, I think it's Dodgers and Braves. It's two. Braves and Dodgers. That's it. The Braves had a 69% chance to make the playoffs, according to this. Very nice. And they have an the Dodgers have an 83% chance to make the playoffs, according to these projections. Cardinals are at 63%. Not too far behind where the Braves are at. Almost nice. According to these projections, the Braves have a 7% chance to win the World Series. The Dodgers have an 11% chance, and the Cardinals are at 6.5%. The Cardinals have, because of their division, a great chance to be able to make the playoffs this year. And if you've made the playoffs, you've got a decent shot to be able to make it to the World Series. I know that people don't like hearing that because it turns the postseason into luck. But let's be honest, there is a whole lot of luck. The Braves were not the best team in Major League Baseball last year, but they won the World Series. And that's all that matters. 2006, that was not the best Cardinals team, but they won the World Series. So who cares whether or not they were the best team uh, of that era? The Cardinals this year don't necessarily have to be the best team in the National League to be able to go to in the win the World Series. And this is why their whole formula is based on what it is. Win enough games to get into the playoffs and then hopefully you've got enough to be able to go on a little bit of a run. Hearing that, though, it makes me think that Fangraphs is going off of the fact that offense is going to win the world series for this team. And as much as we love to believe that it always seems when you get into the playoffs, defense our pitching is what steers a team to a world series championship. And I don't know if I trust the pitching enough to say that I may not trust the starting pitching enough just yet. I have questions about that. I think you're going to get to a spot this year where you're going to see a lot of bullpen arms that you're going to trust once again. But that's what worries me because I don't trust the starting pitching staff in terms of being able to give you the longevity and I'm worried the bullpen is going to be taxed when you get to that point. But we talked about this the other day. I I have more worries about that during the regular season than I do the playoffs. Like if Jack Flaherty ends up, let's say it's July and he's back and he looks like himself by the trade deadline, for example. 
a rotation of Jack Flaherty, Adam Wainwright, Stephen Matz, and then pick your fifth starter or fourth fourth starter rather, whether it be Matz or Michaelis. That's pretty good, man. There aren't a whole lot of teams that I would take over that by a sizable degree. And then if you add that with all of the arms that they could potentially have available to them coming out of the bullpen, where all you need is four or five strong innings out of Wayno or Flaherty at the front end of that rotation. And then you've got guys after guys after guys that are coming out of the back end of that pin, throwing 95 plus miles per hour with sync with this defense behind them. I actually think the Cardinals are once again, going to be very well situated to play playoff baseball along with this time around Alex, having that offense that you're talking about. It's why we were so high on them going into the playoffs last year, if they were able to beat the Dodgers. So I, I think they're, I, I tend to agree with Tanner on this one. I think they're pretty well suited to be able to make a run if they get into the playoffs. My question once again comes back to what you said, though, about the rotation. Do they have enough right now to be able to get there? Because the Brewers, I've got my questions about them. I I don't love that offense. The pitching, it's impossible to question. Their rotation, the front three, is as good as anybody in baseball. And the bullpen, the back two, are as good as anybody has because they decided to keep both of them. It's going to be tough to compete with early in the year. And you're going to need guys to step up on your pitching staff. But if you do get that, or if they're able to find them over the first month of the season, or this is basically a trial period, or if Jack Flaherty's just back before we expect him to be, man, this team, they've got the opportunity to be able to win 95-ish games this year because they pull away from the rest of the division behind the Brewers. And then that sets themselves up really well in the playoffs. And to your point, you brought up, you know, I'm afraid that the starting pitching won't be able to cover the innings and they'll tax through the bullpen. I think what's different this year is unlike last year where you only had, especially in that June run where you had just three guys you trusted, you could tell that by the time we got to July, those guys looked exhausted. Gallegos looked tired. Cabrera looked tired. Reyes looked tired. But by the time that the end of July came around, you had guys that you could trust in that bullpen again. Whitley came up and he was really good at down the stretch. Uh, McFarland was really good and Luis Garcia was really good. So you had six guys that you trusted. So you weren't burning through just the same three over and over and over again. So that's where I feel a little bit more comfortable this season as I look at this bullpen and I see a multitude of guys that I go, okay, they have the stuff. It's just, can will they be able to control it and make it play here at the major league level? I think they can. And that's why I look at it and I go, even if the starting pitching's just okay, I think the bullpen, because there's a multitude of guys, not just two or three that I look at and I think I can trust when we get into the season, I feel a little bit better about it. Unlike last year where when things broke, it went really bad. Yeah, but I felt like you at the beginning of last season. As you do now about that bullpen. Yeah. I felt that way last year. Of all of these guys, that's I, true. I, didn't I feel trust TJ Webb. I trusted all of the Ryan Helsley. I'm like, oh man, this bullpen's going to be dominant. That's my worry. The circle of trust TJ looseness. Webb? What'd I say? Tyler Webb, right? It's TJ Webb. <laughs> Did TJ McFarland and Tyler Webb, Webb just know, morph into one person? They, they might have actually there, but the <laughs> looseness of, of, of the looseness of T-bone circle of trust invitees is why I'm still nervous about this. Uh, Six five seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service text line. We'll get out of here on this. We'll talk to Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, on the other side. From the five seven three, it's ridiculous for BK to say that the better team doesn't win in a five or a seven game series. Do you guys think that the better team always wins? Well, technically, the better team always wins. I think the better team wins if they're healthy. More I, often than not. Yeah. But weird stuff happens in a five or a seven game series. Like the, the five card- game, especially the seven game, I don't think so as much. I think usually yeah, the best game, team wins. Seven, seven game, seven I think best. the best team always wins. You guys think that the Braves were better than the Dodgers last no, year? No, but they weren't, he- the Dodgers Dodgers weren't healthy. The Dodgers weren't healthy. Uh, agreed, but that that's part of the playoffs, right? That's what right? I'm saying. If, if a team is healthy going into the playoffs, then yeah. I think If the Dodgers were healthy, I think they win that series against the Braves. They weren't. And then they ended up having to push their pitching staff to the limits. 
and you saw what happened. They ended up breaking and they lost. Uh, that's what I'm saying is I think if you're healthy in the postseason, I would always take the better team in a seven-game series. Best of five, I agree. Best of five, anything can happen. I, I I think weird stuff happens in the playoffs. Like if the Cardinals and the Dodgers are healthy, the Dodgers are almost certainly going to be the better team going into any series, regardless of the length. They're just the better team. I would give the Cardinals a shot in that series, even though they're not as good. Um, but that's that's just where I come from. I, I tend to view that as more of a crapshoot. Now, you have to reach a certain threshold. Like the If the Diamondbacks this year played the Dodgers in the playoffs in a seven-game series, I, I there would have to be a catastrophic event for the Dodgers to lose that series. But if you're good enough, the marginal difference between those two teams, I, I tend to think that it's not always the better team that wins those. But that's interesting. Maybe we'll have that discussion at a later day. Coming up here in about 15 minutes or so, we'll get into the BK and Ferrario Rewind. But next, Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, joins us here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kyler. We're trying to find Chris Kerber. We'll see if we can find him. He's got some business to take care of. I'm assuming part of the family i didn't realize he was a uh, he, he was on the team he's always a part of the team what's the problem with you man he's italian no i don't think so i think he's irish okay that makes sense I think he's irish that's like the second best thing to italian so right i've got a little bit of both in me that's where the kylie comes in <laughs> <laughs> makes a lot of sense suddenly right i'm not gonna say anything <laughs> to that one a whole lot of things can we clip off bk saying i got a little bit of both in me Save that one for later. Okay. All right. We didn't need that. T-Bone's not even listening to us right hey, now. Hey, did you know Colton Pareko's been playing really well, Alex? But but BK, I've been told that Colton Pareko is an awful defenseman, and he's not playing like a number one defenseman. No, he's playing like a legit number one defenseman, actually, BK, since the All-Star people break. have told me that he's always on the ice for goals against, and he's not a number one defenseman. Not lately. Since the All-Star break, Colton Pareko leads the league with a plus 26 goal differential. That's over a period of 25 different games. Edmonton's Leon Dreisaitl is second in the league at plus 18. Oh, he's good. He scores a lot of goals, T-Bone. Again, Colton Pareko, plus 26 in that same stretch. He's been excellent for this team, and we talked so much, and I remember Jamie mentioned this, and I, I thought it was such a good point at the time, and it was just kind of a different, it was flipping the conversation on its head. Our conversations were always about who is the who is the pairing that you could put Pareko with to get the best out of him. And I think what we're now seeing is you can put basically any of these guys next to Pareko and Pareko is getting the best out of that partner. And that's really what the Blues needed was. Okay, forget about the partner. Obviously, that's going to be hugely important because it's top four defenseman that's going to play 20 minutes a night for you. So you, you need them to play well. They just needed Colton Pareko to look like the number one defenseman. And until that happened, they were never going to be able to hit their peak performance. Yeah, well, and here's one that really got me. And I mentioned to this, you guys off air since February 1st, Colton Pareko leads the National Hockey League in even strength goal differential. On ice, even strength goal differential. And we've talked about in the past how he leads the NHL or he's top five among defensemen in even strength time on ice since that time frame. But a goal differential of plus 23 since February 1st. And think about the teams that he's just played against. Vancouver Canucks twice, who I know people would look at it and say, well, Vancouver is out of the playoffs, but they still have some playmakers in Pedersen and JT Miller and Brock Besser and Bo Horvat. 
He wasn't a minus in either of those games, and he played nearly 27 minutes one night. Then against the Edmonton Oilers that they lost in overtime, but he picked up two assists and played almost 24 minutes of ice time. Calgary, 23 minutes of ice time and was successful against Calgary. And then, of course, the Arizona Coyotes. They're relying on him in big situations right now. And I think the the, the thing that people get caught into with Colton Pareko is, uh, well, he doesn't produce points like Justin Falk does, or he's not getting offensive opportunities like Justin Falk does. I feel like it's more the physicality, right? That's kind of the big drawback with him. Physicality, and he's not picking up points, because that's how people judge defensemen right now. Like Roman Yossi is probably a favorite for a Norris Trophy right now, along with Kale McCarr. Both of those guys are talked about because they pick up so many points. And Yossi's great defensively. But... It started off a little slower for Colton Pareko, who was a more was a minus 14 or 15 at one point this season. But you're starting to see how he's turning into a reliable shutdown defenseman. And mind you, who he's playing with. He's been playing with Marco Scandella a lot as of late. To Marco Scandella, he struggled this season. So I, I just think you're starting to see the emergence back of Colton Pareko taking on that shutdown role. Not the number one defenseman role, but that shutdown role. And the Blues are able to deploy different matchups with their defensive pairings because of this. When Krug comes back, I expect Nick Letty to stay with Colton Pareko and Krug to drop down with Justin Falk. But if not, Tory Krug playing with Colton Pareko is not a bad thing either because you got a guy who's got the transition and the other one who's a stay-at-home defenseman. Yeah, they, they have talked in the past. I remember... Going into the trade deadline, we were able to catch up with Doug Armstrong, and uh, we talked to him about what the ideal partner looks like for Colton Pareko. And he's like, listen, you know, it, you could do it in both ways. It could be a guy that's a real stay-at-home defenseman, or, you know, you could see a guy that's more of a point producer, a, a Tory Krug type of player that ends up getting some more time with a guy like Pareko. I wouldn't be surprised if they decide to do that. And you know what? With the way they've been playing them of late, it might just be a thing that it, it depends on the situation. If it's a defensive zone faceoff, maybe you do put a guy like Scandella out there with Pareko. If you're putting them on the rush, maybe you do see some opportunities where it's both Pareko and uh, Krug going out there together. I think they could really switch it up because all of those guys at this point have so much chemistry with one another because they've switched up the pairing so often this year that you could kind of do it depending on the the situation that you're in. Can I ask you guys this? If, If the playoffs were to start tomorrow and the Blues were taking on the Minnesota Wild, Krug's healthy. You know what your top four is. Who are you going to in that last spot with Robert Bortuzzo? Are you going with Mikel? Are you going with Scandella? Are you Scandella. going with you're going with Scandella? Yeah, really. I think I'd probably go Scandella as well. I'm starting to buy in on Cali Rosen, guys. I think you could. It's one of those two. Not Mikola. Mikola has lost his spot. I think right now. And that doesn't mean it for the long term. This is a very immediate future. This is kind of similar to the conversation that we have with Jordan Bennington. There's a here and now, and then there's a future conversation. They're two very different things. Bennington very well may be the number one goalie going into next year. That's a scary proposition as you think about it right now, but he could be. That's possible if they can't trade him. I think the same thing might be true for Nico Mikula. He might be your third pairing defenseman going into next season. But right now, he's not in my lineup going into the playoffs as of today. It's going to be an interesting decision by the coaching staff, too, because, I mean, Craig Brewey's had some really strong statements about Callie Rosen over these last few games. I believe during the media session on Monday, uh, Craig Brewey mentioned that Callie Rosen reminds him a little of Carl Gunnarsson on the ice. And, I mean, Carl Gunnarsson was always dependable, and you're starting to see that now. I think it's very impactful seeing that Callie Rosen has remained in this lineup, especially when, remember, Logan Brown got in over Mackenzie McEachern for a game, and they said, well, we want to keep guys fresh because we have a lot of bodies. They're not doing that with Nico Mikola, which I think is starting to tell you what their decision is going to get to when it comes to a playoff series. They're not worried about the 
aggressiveness or the nastiness on the defensive side. They're worrying about getting the puck out of their own zone, and that's where Callie Rosen can come into play. Speaking of playing time, Billy Huso's getting the start for the Blues tonight. You'll have pregame coverage for that one beginning at 6 o'clock against the Seattle Kraken. This is another one similar to the Arizona game where you should break their will early on. Go go out, play well in the first period. Don't have Tanner texting us after the first period saying, uh-oh, guys, I'm worried about this one. No, just Get it done. Get it done early. Impose your will and get it, get this thing. By the end of the second period, Seattle should know they have no chance of winning this game. How do you put? How do you deploy your goalies over the weekend? You got a back to back with Minnesota on Friday and on Saturday you're taking on New, the Islanders at home. All three of these next three games are at home for you. Do you go Billy Huso on the short rest against Minnesota just because of the points? I think you have to. I mean, because you have potentially a shot at getting within one point of the Minnesota Wild for second place in the Central, and you still play them one more time. Plus, uh, Jordan Bennington, Jeremy Rutherford of The Athletic put a tweet out, and Craig and Berube and Jordan Bennington were having a conversation today on the side of practice, and and I wonder if that's just Craig Berube explaining to him, like, look, we're riding Billy right now, but we're going to need you at some point. And we all heard his comments post-Edmonton saying that Bennington's just got to make those saves. What I would do is is I would have Bennington play against the New York Islanders and – what I like about playing Ville Husso against our tonight and when he played Monday and when he will play on, on uh, Friday against Minnesota, this is a playoff schedule and Ville Husso has not gone this deep into a season before in his career. We've talked about this. I, I want to know that the guy that I'm relying on to potentially win me a series can play a starter schedule and that's game day off game day off. If Ville Husso looks tired on the ice, I'd start to get concerned because it's like, okay, we're at this point of the season. We're going to need you to play into June if we want a shot at the Stanley Cup. And if you're tired now, we're not going to have a shot. So you need Ville Husso to be in this this playoff mode mentally and physically. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up next, we get to the BK and Ferrario Rewind. Bill DeWitt Jr. said something earlier today on the morning show that I want to react to once again on the other side here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. If you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check out the podcast page, 101ESPN.com and the free 101 ESPN app. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. We were able to catch up today. Well, T-Bone. With Bob Herrick talking a little bit about Masters. We talked to David Eckstein, the 2006 World Series MVP, and Gary LaRock about the Cardinals minor leaguers as well. So lots to catch up on over on the podcast page tomorrow for opening day. We're very excited to be joined by Matt Adams and Mitchell Boggs. We are uh, also going to have our weekly chat with Joey Vitale. Joey, Joey. He's not on yet. Looking forward to that Shouldn't all chance tomorrow him. He told me to grow up show. with my backwards hat. Let's finish things up today. Earlier, there was an interview with Bill DeWitt Jr. on Carriker and Smallman, and he was asked about the Cardinals' unwillingness to go all in on any one season. Here's what Bill DeWitt Jr. told Carriker and Smallman. You know, teams that go all in, that's a strategy. Our strategy has been to really strong teams, but have the opportunity to have, have some continuity with those players. And no team is perfect. There's some really good teams out there. I think we're very competitive and 
you know, we have been competitive for, for a long period of time. Stolter asked this question the other day on the fast line. I thought it was a good one, Alex. He said, if you could have any other strategy, front office strategy, philosophy, if you will, other than the Dodgers, because they're just outspending everybody. They are the gold standard right now in baseball. If you're a fan, you want your team to build the way the Dodgers do because they both draft and develop. They sign guys internationally. They make big trades. And oh, by the way, they have the highest payroll in the sport. So the Dodgers put them aside of any other team. Who would you want the Cardinals to switch their philosophy to? I got to be honest, guys, I like the Cardinals philosophy. Now, they frustrate me sometimes because I would like them to go one for one step further than what they're willing to. I want them to get to that place of being a little uncomfortable where this year go get Sean Manaya or go trade for Pablo Lopez or go go sign that last pitcher that you think could help you out in your rotation or last year. Go out and get that one more big bat that you think could really help your lineup. And they just don't really typically do that. And my hope is that they're willing to in season this year. But that's my only real gripe with the way that the Cardinals built. Honestly, if I were to flip with one, and I wouldn't because I like the Cardinals, but one comes to mind. Are the Pittsburgh? Tor- no, I was going to say Tampa Bay. No, Toronto Blue Jays. I think Toronto has an interesting mindset in terms of they've drafted. Now, I understand they've been bad, which the Cardinals haven't been, but they've gotten the young talent that they can build around. And then they've gone out and they've put they've attributed it with some guys who can be like when they went out there and signed young Jin Ryu to the big contract. And I don't think that's really done well for them, but then they were aggressive and they acquired Jose Barrios this past off or trade deadline. That that's what I want to see at this point for the Cardinals, because I think they have the superstars in place. They just need to be that one last player to be aggressive. with. Can I give you their wins over the last five years though? Because I think this might change your mind on trading. Like, if you were going philosophy, trading the Cardinals philosophy. But they've been developing those young talents, though, This is what you have to go through to get there, is what I'm saying. But what I mean is now, though. Like, I'm not talking about then. I'm talking, like, now. Like, Toronto is, is... They've been bad. They got those talents. But when they knew that they had the talented players, that's when they were aggressive to build around it. So, the reason why I think you can't separate the two is because they're connected. You don't get those superstar talents that you're talking about without going through the down spells first. But you can't stay in this mindset forever. Of like, because like when you have this team in place and you're just going to say, well, we're going to stick with the pitching that we have in place, that's not going to get it done for you. Like if you Unless were aggressive, you make the move in season. But and, and, how often have we seen that to- with them? Totally agree. That's, 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 that's the, the last piece. But that's, what that's, I, that's why I said Toronto, because Toronto said we need another guy, and they went out there and they got Jose Barrios. And the, that's why the team that I come up with, and, it, and you can go back and look at their numbers, would be Atlanta. And it's kind of the same formula that the Cardinals have, is it's be good, remain good, and then uh, go. the difference between Atlanta recently that from the Cardinals as they've been willing to make that move. I mean, last year they acquired, what was it, four outfielders? Mm-hmm. And they were in almost the exact same spot as the Cardinals. The Cardinals, I don't think, were below 500 when they acquired J-Hap and John Lester. The Braves were. The Braves didn't get above 500 until I think it was like in August or something like that. But they were willing to go in and say, okay, we're not giving up on this team. We still think it's good. We have to go make a move because our outfield lost Acuna. We're not going to replace Acuna, but we came with four different guys. And they made that move. And then in the offseason, what happens? All right, we don't want to. we don't want to – break the bank on Freddie Freeman for the six-year contract that he got. We'll go get another first baseman, and in fact, maybe a better first baseman. And we'll go and we'll go deal for Matt Olson, and that's what they did. So if you were to go with a mindset, I think it's a lot of the same similarities between the Cardinals and the Braves. It would just be the Braves have been willing to be that aggressive team, and the Cardinals have just sat back at the deadline. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair one, and it's it's interesting that their GM actually used to be in Toronto when they made the aggressive moves at the trade deadline in, I think it was 14 and 15, if I'm not mistaken, where they went kind of all in on those two years, and then it hurt them on the back end, but they did go all in, and it... 
Uh, it made for a hell of a run and a hell of a story, if nothing else. I think that Atlanta is fair, and they did that thing where they would say, okay, we've got a really good team. We're going for it now. Not all in, but we're going for it by giving you the opportunity to really win in the playoffs. That's the last step that the Cardinals have not been willing to take recently that I want them to take this year. If you're good and you get close to the trade deadline, go make that move for the big-time pitcher or the big-time hitter. Whatever your bigness weakness is, shore that up. Sure, it's still a crapshoot once you get into the playoffs. I think all of us understand that. But give yourself the best chance possible without totally mortgaging the future to be able to win once you get in. Set yourself up for that playoff run. That's the last thing that I really want them to do that they have not uh, over the last few years. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. we are thrilled to come at you live from the home opener tomorrow. We'll be at the Budweiser Brewhouse inside Ballpark Village. Come out there, join us. We'll grab a drink with you after the show tomorrow. We'll be live. Kerker and Smallman from 7 to 10 in the fast lane from 2 to 6 right here on 101 ESPN. Do you have any Dijon mustard? You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.